This is the Art of Darkness podcast with Kevin Kautzman and Brad Kelly. We're a couple of very online writers interested in the dark side of what drives creative people to create against all odds. This show is about art and the people who make it, what it costs them, and what it takes to bring something unique and impactful into the world. Each episode, we excavate the life and work of an artist you might think you know. Don't worry, they're all safely dead. On every episode, we try and find out just what the hell was wrong with them and how they worked through their darkness to create something that lives on after them and continues to move culture. Find us online at artofdarkpod.com and on Twitter at artofdarkpod. Welcome back to another episode of Art of Darkness. I am Brad Kelly. That, you can't see him because it's audio only. That is Kevin Kautzman. (laughs) (laughs) In the theater of the mind, imagine me. I'm here. Hi, we're back. Two episodes, two days in a row. Yeah, that's right. Artofdarkpod.com, patreon.com slash artofdarkpod, twitter.com slash artofdarkpod, all those things. Um, We are back and we are talking today about uh, John Kennedy Tool. But first... We have to bring in, talk about our guest who is his honoring us with his presence. <laughs> the great, um, and, and a lot of people, a lot of people out there don't maybe know yet how great Dan Baltic, <laughs> author of the forthcoming book, Nut Cranker, which is a certified laugh your ass off banger. banger. Absolute banger. banger. Look out Double for banger. It. Yep. <laughs> yes. Coming soon. Coming, coming in, soon. In the spirit of Tool and in the spirit of Confederacy of Dunces in the, the highest praise and the highest sense possible. So we're happy to have Dan on here to talk about and Dan, uh, this. Dan, yeah. And Dan is also Dan is also co-host of a great podcast, uh, New Right, uh, which is in some ways it feels like our sister podcast or something or we're its sister podcast. <laughs> our gender fluid <laughs> polycule, non-binary. Yeah. non-binary poly. We have a pod- podcast polycule. <laughs> but uh, but yeah, no, great to, uh, great yeah. to be here. Thank you yes. for inviting me on. Of course. I've, of course. Um, I've been, uh, you, you both have been guests on New Right. And uh, I have long been a fan of Art of Darkness, as I, uh, I think I tweeted today that you guys put in the work, as they say. And um, honestly, I've been I'm, you know, bowled over by the amount of work and effort that goes into producing an AOD episode. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, yeah you yeah. saw behind you saw behind the scenes now my whole yeah, manic, I know it's like it's, insanity uh, process. it's, it's <laughs> impressive and, uh, you know, indeed humbling and intimidating to see yeah. <laughs> behind the scenes all the work that goes into it. Oh, it's going to be, it's going to be good, man. And you, you know, the book, you know, and I, I listened to for folks who maybe want some additional John Kennedy tool stuff. Um, uh, there's an episode of new, right? You and your co-host, Matt Pegas, who have, uh, on John Kennedy tool, which is which is great. You guys are going into, I think, some of the same territory we're going to cover. Uh, we lean a little yeah. bit more biographical, but I think these are going to serve as kind of yin yang episodes for anybody who's really trying to get uh, John Kennedy tool build completely. Absolutely, um, to get dunced. To get uh, dunced. Yeah, our our right. episode <laughs> was on the consolation of podcasting, yeah. which is a call out to. Uh, his favorite book by Boethius on the consolation of philosophy. 
Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, we focused more on dunces and on like its thematic relationship to the world of today, the current year, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, in this episode, we're going to go uh, from what I understand way more in depth into the man himself, his yeah. life, and in fact, his uh, his other novel yes. that uh, he he wrote too. Many people yeah. don't know this. Yeah, I'm looking for <laughs> I'm looking forward to talking about that. That's going to be really cool because I didn't know a whole lot about it, and so it's going to be really interesting to talk about. Um, I didn't know a whole lot about John Kennedy Tool the person, so I want to start throwing a question to Kevin, which is our standard opening question. Kevin, what do you know about John Kennedy Tool? Here's what I know. For whatever reason, because the character in Dunces is kind of a portly guy, I Mm. imagine he might have been heavy. But this is purely in my imagination. Uh, But also, here's all I know is he's from New Orleans. He Mm. wrote the great comic novel, Confederacy of Dunces, which I believe he was for which he was awarded the Pulitzer posthumously because he could not in his lifetime or get it published. And I believe uh, uh, his mother rather doggedly pursued publication after her son's demise at his own hands. Uh, and the book became a Pulitzer, a Pulitzer Prize winning phenomenon after the fact. I I have heard whiffs of the idea that he had a like a, another piece of like a piece of juvenilia, a novel he wrote when he was younger that may not be that bad. And that, aside from the New Orleans connection, he's from New Orleans, I believe. (laughs) That is really all I know about the great American novelist, uh, or at least a novelist of one of the greatest comic novels Mm -hmm. uh, from from the United States, John Kennedy Toole. So what am I going to learn here today, Brad? Yeah, that's yeah, that's all. That's all right. Uh, He was a. He wasn't uh, he was kind of maybe a little overweight, I wouldn't say sort of cartoonishly the way that that Ignatius Riley might be. But, you know, he's he's he's, uh, you know, he he carried he packed some pounds around, but um, also was kind of a handsome looking guy, too, at the same time. So um, we we're going to get into it. That's that's all. That's all totally right. Uh, Uh, Okay, good. Uh, Before we before we get any further, what are we going to include for the After Dark episode, which is exclusive to Patreon people? We got to keep hammering the Patreon. It's patreon.com slash art of dark pod. This is an effort pod. We put the work in. Like Dan said, Dan's been behind the scenes. He's seen, you know, what's going on. We've got the machine elves working in the background. It's it's intimidating. (laughs) It's frightening. You you guys are constantly on DMT. Yeah. It's, yeah. Uh, <laughs> it's very, uh, well, this is how we this, yeah. channel the spirits of, of dead artists. But but of course every <laughs> every that's what we do. This is a seance. Every episode mm-hmm. of Art of Darkness. So uh, but every episode we give uh, an extra twenty or thirty minutes to our Patreon subscribers. We also have some other fun things in the works. If you want to get it get in at three dollars, you got to do it here before Jan one of twenty twenty three because then we're going to up the level the minimum uh, barrier to entry. Uh, to five. So please support the show. Get the extra bonus content. Brad, what are we going to talk about today on the After Dark? Yeah, we're going to explore the question of was John Kennedy Toole homosexual? And the only reason (laughs) this is of interest is it's still not clear. So we're going to talk about this. There's 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 arguments on all sides of it. And it's actually a kind of an interesting story. But we're going to save that. We're going to save that for the after dark. We might also talk a little bit about uh, the question of is the uh, Confederacy of Dunce, Dunce's film adaptation cursed? 
which uh, that's an interesting question. Oh, yeah. I did not know there was a film adaptation. Oh, there is now. There, there is many not attempts. Oh, <laughs> many attempts that for some reason never seem to work out. Right. Um, well, and of course he, he was a keep Kennedy, dying. So. People keep dying. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, he, yeah. His middle name is Kennedy. So okay. Right, all right. right interesting. Right. Very yeah. good. So so let's uh let's kind of launch into it. Um, I wanna I wanna uh, you said Kevin the great comic novel. You're correct about it being um uh, posthumously awarded the Pulitzer Prize. It was only the third um third posthumous Pulitzer, but the other two were well known writers already. One was uh, Faulkner. And one was um, I'm blanking on it and I'm not sure I have it here, but but he was the, this is the only day posthumous debut to win a Pulitzer. Right. So it's that's a pretty significant asterisk to put next to this to this book. Here's a couple other lists and things that it's been on just to give you a sense of the the the, the impact in the not just in the cult hit sense, but in the in the main sort of mainstream literary sense. Um it's voted by the Oxford American as 12th uh, best Southern novel of all time. And there's some stiff competition on that list. Um, 15th on the Cone Book Distributor's top 100 books of the last century. 43rd on Entertainment Weekly's uh, top 100 novels. It's on the best books ever list by bookdepository.com. The top 100 novels by uh, University of Wisconsin. It's in the Great American Read by PBS. 1001 Books You Must Read Before You Die at thebook.com. Um, a hundred novels that shaped our world by the BBC. What is the best work of American fiction of the last 25, 25 years? Question mark by the New York Times. Uh, number six is John John Kennedy Tools Confederacy of Dunces. Whoa. Esquire put it in the eighty books every man should read, and um, Book Riot has put it in the hundred greatest novels between eighteen ninety three and nineteen ninety three. So it, anybody who writes about books, thinks about books, makes lists, whatever, has some place for confederacy of dunces right and i wanted to highlight that because kevin as you said there's something about the fact that this wasn't published in his lifetime that's caught up with the fact that he committed suicide we're we're going to look closer at that story and get a better sense of what actually happened there but they're 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 they are in, entangled with each other for sure so um i just kind of wanted to lay that lay that out there um uh I think maybe let's, but this is why I kind of want to throw it to Dan. Dan, I think you had a passage maybe queued up to read just to kind of give people who maybe haven't, aren't familiar with the novel or haven't read Confederacy of Dunces in a long time. Just give us a sense yeah. of what we're dealing with. We, we have a couple of good passages to pick from here, but I think this one is one that gives us the greatest sense kind of, of, um, Ignatius's psychology and the style of writing and uh, indeed the, the theme of the novel. So uh, to wit, Ignatius pulled his flannel nightshirt up and looked at his bloated stomach. He often bloated while lying in bed in the morning, contemplating the unfortunate turn of events that had taken place since the Reformation. Doris Day and D Greyhound Scenic Cruisers, whenever they came to mind, created an even more rapid expansion of his central region. But since the attempted arrest and the accident, he had been bloating for almost no reason at all. His pyloric valve snapping shut indiscriminately and filling his stomach with trapped gas gas which had character and being and resented its confinement. 
He wondered whether his pyloric valve might be trying, Cassandra-like, to tell him something. As a medievalist, Ignatius believed in the rota fortunae, or wheel of fortune, a central concept in De Consolatione Philosophiae, <laughs> the philosophical work which had laid the foundation for medieval thought. Boethius, the late Roman who had written the Consolatione while unjustly imprisoned by the emperor, had said that a blind goddess spins us on a wheel, that our luck comes in cycles. Was the ludicrous attempt to arrest him at the beginning of a bad cycle? Was his wheel rapidly spinning downward? The accident was also a bad sign. Ignatius was worried. For all his philosophy, Boethius had still been tortured and killed. Then Ignatius's valve closed again and he rolled over on his left side to press the valve open. Oh, Fortuna, blind, heedless goddess, I am strapped to your wheel, Ignatius belched. Do not crush me beneath your spokes. Raise me on high, divinity. What are you mumbling about in there, boy? His mom asked through the closed door. I am praying, Ignatius answered angrily. Patrolman Mancuso's coming today to see me about the accident. You better say a little Hail Mary for me too, honey. Oh my God, Ignatius muttered. And <laughs> I think that gives us a pretty good uh, sense of uh, the man that Ignatius yeah. is. Yes. <laughs> the preoccupations on his mind. And uh, maybe even a little hint of the uh, sort of um, life and, uh, and the trouble that he has gotten himself into and you know continues to uh, and it, it all goes into. back to martin luther banging the yeah know, nailing those those treaties on <laughs> the, the reformation it really does a disaster yeah. For, yeah it's mm -hmm. hilarious yeah the reformation and its consequences for ignatius's digestion <laughs> a not uncommon refrain today to tell yeah, you the yeah. truth so exactly. it really this is in many respects a very prescient novel it is because, it's, it's crazily timely yeah yeah well, let me let's let before we get too deep into it, Dan, I, I want to make sure we're we're talking about because you I, I feel like um you're the you're the John Kennedy tool guy now. Like if you decide <laughs> you can be you can be like the name that people associate with with him. Uh, what does this book mean for you? What is it? What is it like? What is it? How does it occupy your mind? How does it occupy your creative process? What does it mean to you? And and talk and in relation to Nutcranker or however you want to talk about it. Okay, so I um, I recently wrote uh, a novel which is about to be published called Nutcranker, and uh, this novel I after I finished writing it I I had a sense that it was in some some respects similar to a Confederacy of Dunces, so I went back I started reading rereading Dunces and I realized oh my god. Uh, John Kennedy tool must have burrowed into my subconscious because in many respects, this feels like a, uh, a confederacy of dunces of today. And so dunces has certainly influenced my writing, but uh, beyond that, it, um, it is something that has influenced my, um, you know, my thoughts about literature, my thoughts about what makes a good novel 
And um, I mean, the way the way I think of dunces is, is it's a sort of picaresque adventure, and that that is you know, first and foremost. It's the um, life and times of this, you know, incredibly psychologically complex and hilarious figure, Ignatius J. Riley, as he uh, lives his um, kind of um, crazy life in New Orleans in the 1960s. And so beyond the actual thematic content of the, the novel, which we'll get into, mm-hmm. the, uh, the style and the substance of it, I relate to that very strongly because John Kennedy Tool, and this is in stark contrast to his earlier work, this is, it's, it's almost strange, the um, transformation he made as a writer from his teenage years. But by the time he wrote Dunces, this novel is told not entirely from the perspective of Ignatius, though mostly from Ignatius's perspective, though it maintains a close third person perspective, but nevertheless, that there are you know variations which indicate that, yes, this is an Ignatius chapter. Yes, this is a... Uh, a uh, Lana Lee chapter and et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. But the technique that he employs throughout all of this is something that on New Right, uh, my, my literary podcast, we've talked about a lot, uh, dramatic irony. Mm-hmm. And so that is the technique where you are essentially creating a, a bond between the author and the reader and the author is winking at the reader because you both know that the character is behaving absurdly, insanely, in a way that is totally out of bounds of like decorum. And you're you're all you you know you you understand that the author knows how crazy this sounds, mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. makes it all the more hilarious when right. it when it oh, happens. Yeah. Oh yeah, that's one of the that's one of the delights of Nutcranker is like you can see where you're where Spencer Grunhauer, the main character, much like in Confederacy of Dunces, you can see the absurdity that he's walking himself into sort of absurd traps he's laid for himself that he's walking into and that he can't he he can't see it um and, and yes it, it's such a that's such a beautiful effect it actually makes me think of i mean nutcracker makes me nutcranker makes me think of confederacy of dunces i remember just coincidentally i happened to read don quixote and yes. then confederacy of dunces not in any thought that they were related to each other or anything they just happened to be the two books in a row that i read and thinking like these are this is like almost the same absolutely (laughs) they're the very similar similar because there's definitely that that humorous dramatic irony thing going on in don quixote i mean that was maybe uh the 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 the, uh sort of uh exemplar of it for several hundred years you know um yeah i love it i love it yeah no no absolutely in fact uh fellow a friend of both of our pods astral said Mm -hmm. that um Rather than Dunces, he thought that Nutcranker was like a direct heir to Don Quixote. Oh, and I'm nice. like, uh, yeah. well, thanks, Astral. That's great. Welcome to be the you know direct yeah. heir to Don Quixote. Yeah. But uh, yeah. Astral does he doesn't <laughs> mince word. Astral always goes for big air. Yeah. It's big air or nothing at all. With <laughs> right. I love right. it. I love it. Uh, yeah, but yeah, 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 no, it's um, I would say like definitely. Dunce, Dunces is in the tradition of Quixote. Well, all, all novels are in some yeah. sense in the tradition of Quixote, but mm-hmm. uh, you know, very much that is the case with Dunces. That is the case with Nutcranker. Mm-hmm. And this uh, this concept of dramatic irony, 
I think that's where actually a lot of today's humor comes from. When you think of great satiric novels, contemporary satiric novels, you think of maybe Sam Lipside, mm-hmm. you think of maybe, uh, well, not really Philip Roth, but in some respects, you think of, um, you know, uh, Kingsley Amos, mm-hmm. and uh, yeah, it, um, it definitely dramatic well, irony is even, something that... Even something, I'm sorry to talk over you, but even something like Palinuk and Fight Club is very humorous. There, there's oh, a yeah, lot of humor in, in Palinuk. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. 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 There's just this sense that like the reader and you, the author, know that what is happening is insane, but the characters, they are just, you know, players on the stage. <laughs> right, right. And right, right. they don't know. Yeah. Um, but yeah, to go back to Dunces, that's one of the reasons why I like it thematically and uh, stylistically, but also there, and there is a great New Yorker article about this. And I, I hesitate to say a, a great New Yorker article because <laughs> there are so few, but right. I, this, this was a good one. Yeah. And at least so few these days. Yeah. And um, this was about how Ignatius is a proto edgelord. And yep. in, in many respects, like a, Ignatius, as we'll get into him and, and describe him in greater detail. Well, this is a man who is unemployed. Well, he's, that's part of the novel. He tries to find work and can't yeah. really keep a job. So he's like, he's essentially living with his mother. He is a neat, a, a neat. not in education, mm-hmm. uh, employment or training, employment yeah. or training. There yeah. we go. Yeah. And so that, that is who he is. And in addition to that, he is a monarchist. He uh, he <laughs> yeah. is a he is a, a Christian humanist. He is a Catholic, and uh, he he believes that uh, the correct form of government would be some form of integralism. Right. So I ask you, is this a, a figure that we might be you know uh, yeah. recognized today? A, a monarchist integralist yes. who yes. is neat and lives at home. Yeah. Perhaps yeah. It, did this. Anticipate the current moment. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> for sure. Yeah. Absolutely, yeah. he nailed. He Don't nailed forget, it. bloated, bloated. bloated yeah, yeah, well. so. yes. uh, <laughs> yeah, probably. Yeah, <laughs> we we may get sued by certain internet personalities. <laughs> <laughs> this, is, this episode is going to be one long subtweet. <laughs> oh well, that was excellent. I feel like we've got we've got a good our, our sort of places set. Now we all kind of know what we're talking about with Confederacy of Dunces. And I think we can now we're going to get into who this guy who wrote it. So um, John Kennedy Toole, as we know, uh, went by various names. And this is actually, I think, important to start to understand what this guy was like. He would go by John with some people, by Ken with some people, and also by Kenny with some people, right? During different times of his life, sometimes simultaneously. This group calls me John. This group calls me Ken. Um, It's basically a middle class family in New Orleans, born uh, December 17th. 1937 he died in 1969 at the age of just 31 years old uh as we said at his at uh at his own hand never having published a word since his earliest college days um that that's terribly tragic and we're gonna i'm sure we're gonna get to it and this is art of darkness so we do we do tend to focus on Mm -hmm. the dark side of creativity that's what the show is about that's the little uh the hook yeah Yeah. stick if you will and uh the suicides are never, never 
fun. This, this one's tough. Yeah. I don't this like. Uh, yeah. So yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Take care of yourself out there. Yeah. Yeah. yeah we're yeah, gonna get yeah. to it. It's it's a bummer, but it's also I think it does actually tell us a lot about creativity and psych psychology. I, I think this is actually one of these we talk about like you know what <laughs> we we talk about what is the art of darkness? What is why does you know this is a classic case. This is a perfect a perfect example for the show. Can I yeah, can I predict? Yeah. Can I predict we're going to have some some serious mommy issues? Yeah. Could be mommy issues. Yeah, Kevin. Oh, I, All right. I believe so. <laughs> okay. So. All right. Good. Yeah. So get, get my my here. next good. line and my outline is first his mother, uh, <laughs> Thelma Tool. Also, uh, her her maiden name was Thela, Thelma Decoying, and I cannot say that with the proper New Orleans uh, accent. But Thelma Decoying was a descendant of. Jean Francois de Coin, who was born in France in 1776 and came to colonial Louisiana working as a tinsmith in the French Quarter, right? So, just in your mind's eye, tinsmith in the French Quarter, this is where part of John Kennedy Tool comes from. Now, in 1815, towards the end of the War of 1812, um, de Coin, uh, Tool's great grandfather, right? Great grandfather, yeah. Um, took charge of a single heavy mortar in the Battle of New Orleans, right? This is this is the War of 1812. Um, and he was injured in this combat before Andrew Jackson managed to route the, the red shirts out to sea, right? Now, in something that I think John Kennedy Toole would have thought hilarious, when this battle took place, when the Battle of New Orleans took place, the War of 1812 was already over, but <laughs> no one had managed to get a message to any of the combatants. So it had been over for like two or three weeks at this time, right? And there's still, you know, they just, the message, you know, it was the 18, it was 1815. The message just hadn't gotten to anybody yet, um, which it's just, it's, it's this misunderstanding, right? However, uh, uh, the great grandfather, uh, Jean-Francois, because of his bravery and chivalry and all of this, is given a, basically a lifelong pension uh, and he's given a, uh, I think he's, he's also given some property and there's a sort of an economic boom that happens following the war of 1812, of which he is sort of the ben a, a major beneficiary. Um, he builds a house in this part of New Orleans called Falberg Marigny. People who are familiar with New Orleans might know where that is. It still exists. And Thelma, John Kennedy tools, mother was born in the very same house that this Jean Francois guy built. So so John Kennedy Toole is a as native son of a native son. I mean, he's in he's he's woven into the history of New Orleans. Right. Um, and, and this is this is relevant because, um, you know, it, it's probably a little less like this all of the time. But New Orleans, I don't think we can stress this enough. New Orleans is as close to a foreign country as you can get in America. Yes, it's not quite like that now, I'm sure, as much as it was. But you can imagine in 1815, certainly. And that was still somewhat there by the time that, that John Kennedy tool, you know, it's sort of fading by the time that John Kennedy tool comes around in 1937. Certainly Thelma grew up in a New Orleans that would seem more like somewhere in France than it seems like America. Um, uh, now. There's a little bit of, we need to kind of throw in there because John Kennedy Toole, despite this decoying name and this 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 most reputable uh, ancestor being a Frenchman, John Kennedy Toole is actually mostly Irish. Uh, he's Irish. All right. Yeah. <laughs> so he's got the he's got a little bit of that gift of gab along with the uh, <laughs> along with the New Orleans thing. Apparently, I didn't know this. Apparently, there's quite a few Irish people uh, in in New Orleans. There um, are Irish people 
everywhere yeah. in this, in this <laughs> rotten country, <laughs> this rotten land. All right, you know, just, yeah, geez, calm it down. I'll, I'll edit that out. <laughs> someone had to win the uh, the Civil War for the North, so yes, the Ringers. That's right. That's right. Well, I think yeah. we and we uh, Lincoln's Ringers. Yeah. Lincoln's Ringers. Ringers. Yeah. Yeah, dot com. yeah, yeah. I think we got plenty of Irish between the three of us. Yeah, that's right. Uh, so, um, okay. No. Yeah. So, so decoying. So, now, uh, Thelma's Irish comes from the more sort of reputable side. His John Kennedy Tool's father's side, which is all Irish, comes in a later wave of immigration. So, even though there, there's a lot of Irish on both sides of the family, there's this split between what Thelma would call the shanty Irish, which was mm. the tool side, and the lace Irish, which was her side, right? So mm. she never really liked the tool, the tool side of the family. Um, and she was big on like, she's she's kind of almost a cartoon character. She was very big on, you know, being very refined and upstanding. And she would wear gloves when she went out, you know, and gloves and oh, a wow. hat, even into like her 80s, she would she would dress like this. And she um she uh, she started out and oh, she would roll her hours throughout her life. And it was kind of at some point, I think people made the claim that like she's doing that on purpose. That's not like, <laughs> you know, it's not necessarily her natural voice, this rolling of the hours thing. Um, yeah, she taught at first in the public school system. But at this time, when you got married, if you were a woman and you got married, they wouldn't in, in your the husband, you know, was expected to, to support the household you basically weren't given a job as a teacher or you were kicked out laid off or whatever um, to make room for single women. So she had taught for a while, then she got married and then she got the boot. And from then on, she wouldn't really have any stable sources of income, but she would be a tutor. So she would teach violin and she would teach piano and she would teach something she called dramatic expression. It was like going around trying to do like tutor people and like finishing school kind of stuff, right? This is yeah. fair to say she was putting on airs. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> uh -huh. I think that's what that's they her that. whole yeah. her whole mm. bag was putting on airs, right? Mm. Um, a little bit about um, we're gonna get back to his mom because she's she's definitely the second character in this. She's the antagonist somewhat, and 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 you know the second most interesting person in the story. Um, but quickly about his father, John Kennedy Toole's father, uh, John Sr., John Dewey Toole. Um, he was a neighbor of Thelma's growing up, kind of the wrong side of the channel. He was channel, what they called channel Irish, because he was part of this. His family was part of the second wave of immigration. So they were sort of the they were sort of on the slummier side of town, uh, though it was not, not far away. Um, he was a pretty handsome guy. There's a picture of him in this this biography, which I'm getting most of this information from uh, by. <laughs> Uh, you telling me that uh, people have been bigoted about their neighbors, yeah, uh, yeah. historically yeah. throughout history. Yeah, it's like or, you can't you yeah. moved from the same country we did 15 years later. You, piece, you know, <laughs> right. you're barely human. You shanty, mm, right. yeah, yeah. Shanty live in your Irish. Shanty. Yeah, we yeah. live in a double yeah. wide shanty. So, <laughs> so I'm pulling most of my information from uh, this this biography by Renee Paul Nevels and Deborah George Hardy uh, called Ignatius Rising. 
it's pretty good. It's yeah. a little bit controversial. Um, there's a another biography I'm going to pull some stuff from uh, called Butterflies in the Typewriter by um, Colin McLaughlin. Um, there's this one is a slightly controversial, but I think there's a lot of good excerpts from letters and things in here. And I think the basic information is good. Um, so anyway, uh, there's a picture of John Kennedy Toole's father in it. He's he's a pretty handsome guy. He won the uh, state debate. He was the state debate champion like his senior year of high school. And he went on to uh, uh, he went on to become a car salesman, you know, in the 20s, pretty early in the you know, this is cars are kind of new. And he had a car before all of his neighbors because he was a car dealer. So there's a little bit of class attached to that, even if they weren't particularly wealthy. Um, sure. So that's like being a computer salesman in the 80s. Kind of. Yeah, that's, that's what I was going right. to say. Yeah. yeah. Have you heard of this thing? The Internet? <laughs> yeah, it's going to change the world. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Right. Now, there are here's one thing I, I'm going to put a. am going to just put this here and then it's going to come back later for a while. When John Sr. and Thelma got married for a while, they lived with John Sr.'s brother. But he was so eccentric that they had to move out. He stank. In this family. Yeah, in this family. Yes, he stank. He said weird things. He apparently bathed in hot milk. And just after a while, they're like, we cannot, we can't do this. And after they moved, <laughs> let's, let's yeah. get this guy in the pod. Yeah, I know, right? I wish he was still around. <laughs> I'm sure he has some interesting ideas, right? Yeah, really. Yeah, yeah. So Thelma, Thelma used this this experience with with uh john senior's brother for the rest of their life is like a wedge and like to maintain her air of superiority her family was always the better family right and they they constantly they were frequently distancing and distancing and distance distancing from the tool side of the family um and they got married in 1926 john jr our john john kennedy tool wasn't born until 1937 almost a decade later and he's an only child there's some indication that they didn't even want children or Thelma at least didn't even want children. It comes kind of late. She's 36 years old or so at this point. They are they are a nominally a Catholic family as well. I was going to say they're yeah. they're not they're not doing their their job for no. the Lord. Right, yeah. right, right. Oh, I mean, yeah. they, they were sort yeah. of like on Easter Christmas uh, Catholics, but nonetheless, okay. it's, it's a little it's a little unusual for the context, right? Once again, the Reformation. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's exactly. why I don't have any siblings, you know, this kind of thing. <laughs> right, right, right. Dan, um, you, you do, have do something have to say. Any yeah. sense why they waited so long? Were there was it an accident? Were they um, trying I, not to? I don't and, think or... I, I think they didn't want to. There's sort okay. of anecdotal evidence that Thelma didn't want children. I see. So um, maybe this this was in fact he John Kennedy tool was perhaps an accident. I think he, I think he probably was an accident. That that seems mm. to make the most sense to me. You know, you get married pretty young and and they were doing it through the late 20s up until the depression, they were doing well. Like when they got married, John Sr. was a pretty successful guy. There's no reason why they couldn't have had children. They had a big family yeah. around, you know. There's it doesn't really make any sense except one of them, you know, didn't want to or you know, health reasons or something. Um but as soon as John Kennedy Toole is born, she goes into full on devouring mother mode. She's, uh, you know, it brings out all of the latent narcissisms and weirdnesses that she has. And they all get foisted onto poor John Jr. Um, early on, this manifested in like she wanted him to she wanted to raise him to be a perfect um, 
Southern gentleman, and not only a perfect Southern gentleman, but a perfect New Orleans gentleman, and not only a perfect New Orleans gentleman, a perfect uptown gentleman, which is a specific type. It's a specific area of in in lineage of how you act, how you dress, how you uh, attend parties. When he was a child, he had engraved calling cards that he would, you know, leave with people. (laughs) And he was at his mother's urging. He was always giving little gifts to his teachers and things like that. Right. There is a picture in this biography of him dressed up at three years old in like a in a white little drummer boy outfit to go to a Mardi Gras party. Um, so he was very much she was trying to mold him into this perfect New Orleans gentleman, trying to get him a good education. Um, she ideally would have put him into Catholic schools, but she didn't do that because she didn't want all of her money going to the Vatican. There's something weird there that wasn't isn't fully understood what her problem was, but interesting. Yeah. Because so, I mean, she, she is a Catholic. obviously. She's, yeah. She's not, yeah. On, on paper, huh. she's a, she's a Catholic, right? So it's a big church. It's, <laughs> it's, a big, <laughs> it's true. It's true. Um, so now on top of this, wanting John to be a star, you know, mothering him, putting all this attention on him, him being the only child of older parents. Um, she wanted John Kennedy tool to be, a star. She was like a proto stage mother, the way that we think about them now. And remember, she loved to teach violin and the dramatic expression, right? She very, you know, rolled her R's. And so she was, he was almost like a theatrical project for her when he, when he was a child, which is of course great for every little boy. Um, (laughs) Let me give you a little reading. This is the first thing I'm going to read from this biography about Thelma and the whole theater thing. Um, She's such a she is such a trip. I can hardly a, believe she's a, a tiger real mom. Listen, and New Orleans, fantastic town. Oh, if yeah. You've never love been. It. Yeah, yeah, love it. yeah, get there. Go for Halloween. Oh, that is yeah. a cool to and go cool. when the Saints are playing. Mm. Fun. That sounds Don't cool. Eat, yeah. eat your way yeah. through New Orleans. Oh, the food yeah. is fantastic. Yeah. Um, all right. So here's just a little bit about Ken. And uh, I'm going to call him Kenny, Ken Tool throughout. Um, from the time Kenny could talk, he was encouraged to perform. Alert, intelligent, and verbally precocious, he came alive in front of an audience, whether they were family, friends, or a group of complete strangers. Like his father, who had a repertoire of hysterically funny voices, Kenny was a natural mimic. The, uh, people would say this about him throughout his life. He could imitate anybody. Um, they were both rare individuals who could reproduce at will any accent or variety of sound effects. Add to that Kenny's natural acting ability and the encouragement of a trained live, live-in coach, his mom, and one can understand why at an early age he seemed headed for a life on the stage. So this is from his very earliest days, right? Um, she's... So she's encouraging this, but again, she also wants him to. She wants him to do something that's going to make the family name respectable. In her mind, she's still a decoying, you know, that she's got mm. that Jean Francois decoying. We are a respectable uh, New Orleans family, and you know, you're going to be a part of that tradition. Your father's a, a bum and a piece of crap, but you are gonna, you know, you are gonna elevate our family back to kind of where we belong. Um, mm. Um, he's is now this is the thing he is very intelligent he's very precocious he's a December baby so he's right on the edge um, and she gets him to skip a grade and there's a kind of a funny little story about the process of this let me just read this real quick Um, let's see let's see Um, a determined Thelma this is again from the uh, the what is it Neville 
Neville's and Hardy biography, Ignatius Rising. Um, a determined Thelma went back to the school board to have Kenny evaluated for promotion. He's going to skip a grade. This time he was given a Stanford Binet IQ test the psych- uh, by a psychologist employed by the school board. As few records were kept during World War II and due to a paper shortage and because Kenny's cumulative folder did not survive water damage to the storage room at 48 High School, there was no verification of the test results. Um, a score of 130 would be enough today to have a child classified as, quote, gifted, but it wasn't extremely high and not at all on a genius level. Though Thelma returned to McDonough waving a paper stating that her child had a genius score of 133. In later years, Thelma would defend the fact that her son's score wasn't higher by saying he refused to cooperate with the tester, and she reported that she, Principal Elizabeth Danner, and Kenny's first grade teacher had a Class A shouting match right in the hall of the school. Mrs. Ruhlman said that there was indeed some sort of argument about Kenny leaving Miss Langtree's class, but despite this unpleasant incident, Kenny did skip into second grade. Um, Thelma loved to use this word genius to describe uh, Tool. She, after his death, when she was being interviewed about him, um, she would say, "And oh, my genius. Oh, what did my genius do next? My genius who wrote this book. She was always, that was her one of her favorite terms to, to apply to him, right? Which is kind of a lot of pressure uh, to put on a little kid. <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, you're a genius. You're going to do incredible things, right? Um, um, so uh, now this star thing him being a star thing doesn't last forever as you can imagine him being the little star she starts up a troop of players about up to 50 children it's kind of insane this community theater thing with all children of all ages and they go and they play at like um convalescent homes um social clubs and stuff like that they go on and put performances on and she thrusts uh, Kenny into the front of these things. Kenny, they're 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 formed around Kenny. They're they're for Kenny to be the main thing, right? Um, but by the time he hits thirteen, um, thirteen is this sort of hormonal stage where you're you know you're early teenager and you don't want to really do anything that your parents say. He has his own sort of rebellion and he starts showing up, being very solemn, starts pushing pushing back, not wanted to not wanting to participate in these events. Um, and this is the start of a sort of a fissure between him and his mom, because his mother has built this whole thing around him, this whole community theater thing around Kenny. And Kenny doesn't want to do it anymore. Um, he's gets kind of depressed. I mean, and, and you have to imagine, too, he's he's being thrust at the front of this this group. But by the time he's 13, he's five foot ten. He's kind of overweight. He's awkward and kind of, you know, gangly, though overweight, like, you know, like any 13 year old are their Their bodies are still kind of coming into the shape that they're going to be. Um, and he's got to sing these like cheesy old timey songs. Right. He doesn't he doesn't want to do that. <laughs> what year are we in around here? This what are would we be in, uh... 1950. OK, so the war's ended. Yeah. All right. Yeah. yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Mm. yeah. Yeah. Um. So we'll talk a little bit about. uh adolescence sort of high school time period um he in high school partially based on this theater thing this is where he starts getting becoming an expert at compartmentalizing his life he's got the life with his mom he'll have a life with this friend over here a life with that friend over here the friends don't come home because his mother is embarrassing um and he would do this sort of throughout his life i mean there's one point um 
there's one point much, much later where he starts hanging out with some uh, New Orleans musicians and he would kind of just show up when they're having a show and hang out and drink beer with them afterwards, maybe help them carry gear out to their van or whatever. And um, they later would say that they didn't know he was a writer, that <laughs> they didn't know he was in college. Like they'd known him for years. They knew him by, you know, hang out with him every week or two and they didn't know anything about his life. And this is the kind of thing he was good at doing, was keeping discreet. This is the of... way it should be. <laughs> I love it. There's nothing I, wrong with it. I don't want you to know I'm a podcaster. Right. I don't want, <laughs> let's not talk about it. Some of the, but truly yeah. some of the greatest, uh, I'm, I'm being uh, yeah. jokey there, but truly yeah. some of the greatest artists, it's just like, no, I don't, it's like Bacon, Francis mm -hmm. Bacon. Yeah, I don't want to talk, talk about, about it. painting. Right. <laughs> like, I, right. It's, I, uh, you know, yeah. Yeah. yeah, of course he would in the right context, but like when he, anyway. Yeah. 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 Also, yeah. this is uh, another one of the instances where it anticipated modern times, his life in that in this day and age with all these non profiles and stuff. I have my internet friends. Mm -hmm. I have my IRL friends who yep. know about my podcast. I have my IRL friends who, if they did know about my podcast, <laughs> I would, uh, you know, lose them. So, right, uh, right. yeah, you, you can't, you can't see me right now, right now, but I'm pawing my internet friends through the <laughs> camera like a, like a lonely cat. Oh, I'm here. Thank you, Dan. Thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah, but no, that's, that's a really, that's a really good observation. It's very true. It's, it's, mm. it's, we have become sort of fragmented and it's, it's, you know, in, in, in some sense, it's fine. I think for Ken, it, 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 in his own life kind of presages his um later on well we're gonna get to it but i think the this thing that he had broken his life into these various different pieces made it hard for him to hang on to who he was later on and yeah as he get, as he comes towards the end you kind of you have all these different pieces and you kind of put them together and you're like oh they don't actually add up to a whole life somehow right um and so i think i think we're gonna see that um but, you know, early on at high school, he was a popular guy. Like he had friends. Um, he was funny. He wrote in the school paper. Um, you know, I don't know if he was quite a class clown, but many people speak really highly of him. He had, quote unquote, girlfriends, though it was they were very chaste relationships. Um, we're going to talk some more about what might, may or may not have been going on there later. Um, but, you know, he up until this point, up to high school, He's just a he's a he's a bit of an overachiever. He's a year ahead, um, but he's physically big enough that it doesn't seem odd. You know, if you're a small kid and you, you're a year ahead, maybe you, you kind of stick out. He wasn't that had a high school, you know, had this co column that was apparently very popular. It was like a gossip column that he would use to like to like uh, like like sarcastically knock his enemies, you know, quote unquote. What are we stuff what are we that. talking about on the after dark again? We're going to talk about whether or not John Kennedy tool was a homosexual. And you're telling me he had a gossip column in high school. Yeah. Okay. Right. I'm just trying Kevin, to Kevin, I'm, don't ruin the after. I know the pieces fit. Go go on. Go on. Now here's something else that he's doing during high school. And he and this is another example of compartmentalization. Nobody knew about this. He was writing his first novel called The Neon Bible. I'm gonna kick mm. it to Dan to kind of tell us a little bit about the Neon Bible. Let me interject real quick. That is a cool title it's a great title it's the title of a uh of an album by um i mean they stole it they took it from him oh, who is it anyway i'll look it up yeah it's a cool it is a great name it's a great title 
Absolutely. Yeah. No, I, I love the title. I mean, uh, perhaps uh, seconded only by uh, a confederacy of dunces. Yeah. But uh, yeah, I know. Excellent fire. title. And uh, yeah, so the Neon Bible, as I, I started reading it in preparation for this podcast, I actually had not read it before. And I was struck by, um, well, like, as, as would be normal if you write something in high school and then you write something that, uh, which is a more considered adult effort like Confederacy of Dunces, you will see a dramatic change in the style of writing, in the ability, frankly. And that is present here. In the Neon Bible, he, it's not as, his skills are not quite as sharp his, um, you know, grasp of the material is not quite as, uh, the, his grasp of the human experience perhaps is not quite as strong. And uh, that, that, is, that does shine through. But what also shines through is that by any other standard, this is a very good novel. This is, you know, certainly much better than a lot of the novels that are produced and published today. Uh, and, which we and he's, yeah, and he's and 16 he's, years 16. old. Yeah. 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 So this is, really quite good it's um hard to say exactly how biographical it is or how autobiographical but it's about a uh, a young boy and his struggling family in a small town his father loses his job they have to move out of the town into the hills they uh, are kind of outsiders the townspeople look down on the people in the hills and that is kind of the dynamic that um, that is at play there. And uh, so there's there's a lot of interesting insights into the neon in the neon Bible. And it gives us a lot of insights into uh, the character, um, the, the adolescent mind and, you know, uh, motivations and, and values of John Kennedy tool. And so. I think it would be fair to say that uh, in this novel, certainly um, John Kennedy Toole perceives the protagonist as an outsider. And um, indeed, uh, Ignatius uh, also obviously is an outsider. Yeah. And uh, I think as, you know, as the episode will show, Toole probably thought of himself as an outsider yeah, as well. I, I think that's, I think that's fair. I think it's, it's interesting with him because I think, it was a sort of a he kind of destined himself to it, as I think we'll see. It was it was like he couldn't it, it wasn't he wasn't an outsider because people pushed him out. He was an outsider because he wasn't willing to go in. If yeah. that makes sense. Yeah, no, that uh, that seems clear and yeah. even clear in ways that like are not spelled out. But mm. a close read of dances to me would uh, demonstrate that. But uh, yeah, to return to Neon Bible he um it's uh it's interesting because the the character of ignatius is um you know he is a monarchist he wants to have a kind of a catholic integralist society he is very highly moralistic and uh, so obviously uh, the, the you know there's a lot of scholarship and criticism of to what extent uh, you know is this a parody to what extent is this uh, are these tools own views 
And I think that's hard to say exactly. That's hard to, and we'll probably discuss it, but it's hard to kind of unwind where tools views begin, where Ignatius's views begin, but to the extent to which the neon Bible offers perhaps a, uh, a through line into his uh, adolescent, you know, beliefs, morality, uh, values, he, um, he kind of chafes at the conservative Southern society of his day. He, uh, there's a character named Aunt May, who is his, the, the, the aunt of the protagonist in Neon Bible, who uh, was a former showgirl. And she, for that reason, is a, an outcast in the town. But um, the, the protagonist, the child, who you know perhaps was a stand-in for Tool, he um, he felt great uh, attachment and sympathy for Aunt May, and in a sense for uh, the way in which, um, in that era, uh, women of uh, her you know station and life you know choices, what have you, are were ill treated or used up by society, and um, so that that in a sense that in that period of time that kind of sympathy for the Aunt May character that um, and in, and indeed um, the protagonist of Neon Bible has some level of uh, well uh, clearly he he believes that the attitudes of the conservative South concerning race and a few other, uh, you know, areas, uh, issues are uh, close minded, shall we say. Yeah. And that that makes him an outsider during that era. And uh, we I wonder to what extent, um, you know, he he also in, in dunces expresses uh you know clear kind of derision for the pieties of the bohemian uh kind of uh social what, what today would be like the social justice class yeah. so he he clearly has um uh it's clear that it's unclear where <laughs> tools politics lie that yeah is we're my, gonna we're going to see that. There. No, that's great. And, I, and that's interesting that that's showing up in the Neon Bible because I think we're going to see that in the South. He's a little he's a little more whatever the term is. He is sort of chafing at some of the some of the old conventions. But later when he goes, he lives up north in New York City for a while. He gets up there and it's it's like, oh, this is well, this is a little bit much. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. So it's he's sort of an outsider in both places, you know, coming from different I think a directions. Lot of, I think a lot of people have that experience, especially now yeah. where people transplant a lot more. You think, well, I'm a. Right. I'm, a, I'm a bit liberal. And then you right. move to San Francisco and you're like, like nope, no, nope, 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 <laughs> nope, nope. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Mm. Interesting. Um, yeah. So I don't know. Do Is there anything else about um, Neon Bible we want to say or? Should I read one of the passages? Yeah. If you got that passage, right. yeah, that'd yeah. be great. All right. So this is, and we, we just listened earlier to a passage from Dunce's now I think that you know if um, if we're paying attention, the uh, the prose will will sound somewhat different here. Um, still good, but uh, not quite as oh I, I suppose not quite as in some respects sophisticated or developed. But in in any case, not bad by you know many standards. So here we go. 
but I knew the way the people in town thought about things. They always had some time left over from their life to bother about other people and what they did. They thought they had to get together to help other people out. Like the time they got together about the woman who let a colored man borrow her car and told her the best place for her was up north with the other N-word lovers. And the time they got the veterans with overseas wives out. If you were different from anybody in town, you had to get out. That's why everyone was so much alike. The way they talked, what they did, what they liked, what they hated. If somebody got to hate something and he was the right person, everybody had to hate it too. Or people began to hate the ones who didn't hate it. They used to tell us in school to think for yourself, but you couldn't do that in town. You had to think what your father thought all his life. And that was what everybody thought. It's hmm. remarkably sophisticated for a 16-year-old. Absolutely, old. yeah. yeah. That, that was yeah. my takeaway. Sophisticated morally, but mm. also like very good writing for a 16-year-old. It is, and it's 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 coming from a similar, like it's not a just screw you, dad. Like there is like a, a little bit of a rebellion kind of, but it's not it's somewhat focused and observant actually rather there's than a, generalized there's a yeah. profound sadness in that passage too mm -hmm. it's very oh, sad yeah yeah because well, yeah, yeah. you can hear him saying at some point they're going to kick me out too right yeah, or I'm at some point i'm leave. i'm yeah. going to be the one that's got to leave or something yeah, yeah. and anybody who's yeah. grown up in a town like that immediately recognizes it mm -hmm. it's a very difficult thing to articulate but it's mm -hmm. real mm -hmm. whole cultures are like that yeah 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 <laughs> sort of it's, fatalism yeah. Yeah. Mm. Interesting. Yeah, and con conformism and mm -hmm. just, yeah. 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 So, um, so we'll move on. We'll talk. I mean, that's kind of closes out. That's the sort of the high school version. Now he graduates early too. He's, he's, uh, I think 16 years old actually when he graduates. Um, uh, and he's written this, he's, <clears throat> he's written this book. He sends neon Bible off to a couple publishers. Nothing comes from it. Um, you know, he sort of just puts it on a shelf and, and it's never mentioned again. I, nobody really knew about this book until well after he died. Nobody even knew it existed until somebody was kind of going through his archives. Um, he ends up getting um, he did well in high school and he ends up getting a scholarship to Tulane. Uh, so in New Orleans, um, to which Thelma, of course, said that he was a genius. Uh, <laughs> his initial plan was to get a degree in engineering, of all things, Um and that went out the window pretty much right away because he kind of knew that English literature was was going to be his his thing. Um, you know, the, I think the engineering came, thing came from, you know, his his father had been at least moderately successful, um, but it was kind of a dwindling. It was kind of a dwindling thing. They weren't doing that well economically anymore. And the high points of the tool family's finances probably came when John was a little boy. So by the time he's in college, it's starting to look like, well, when am I going to have to take care of mom and dad? Like that's not quite there yet, but it's looming. Right. And it will become an issue later. Um, he uh, does really well at Tulane. He's on the Dean's list. He gets involved in the school newspaper, writing book reviews and articles, uh, actually cartoons as well. He contributes cartoons to the Tulane school newspaper. Um, there are a couple little predilections that I want to I want to just make sure we capture about him that kind of developed during this time. Um, one is an obsession with Marilyn Monroe. So, um, 
you know, after dark, we might think about this a little bit more. Yeah. Yeah. There was just a, a little movie that came out that caused a little bit of a stir oh, about Maryland. Yeah. Maryland. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Blonde. So, yeah. Yes. People we're talking about yeah. that movie. Okay. Seen, we, are gonna do, we are going to do, we are going to do Maryland. Maryland is, is big air. Anybody yeah. who has uh, millions of posters on walls mm -hmm. uh, is big air. Well, she's definitely uh, an interesting figure. I mean, she's still, hmm. she's still, we're still trying to figure out what she meant, you know? Yeah. For sure. Indeed. Um, yeah. So he, he thought of her, he idolized her. He thought of her as the most, be, you know, beautiful, sensual, vulnerable. She was almost like a, to him, she almost seemed like, and he, he, I don't think he thought of this in a disrespectful way. She was almost like an alien to him. She was almost, he was almost like, I can't understand how a human being can be this. You know, that he was that sort of enamored with her. Um, he uh, even actually wrote a letter to a New York Times journalist who'd written an article about her saying that how much he liked the article and how fair it had been. Right. Um, so like <laughs> he's, he's, he's simping the journalists who are yeah. simping for Maryland. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Wow, he's a simps simp. Simp, simp, yeah, double simp. Yeah, yeah that, that's <laughs> tough. That one's tough for me. <laughs> uh, so he he uh he's also becoming i mean he's also developing this humor right he's he's we said in high school popular he can mimic people he can tell stories this is just getting more and more obviously as he's getting older getting more and more refined so by the time he's in college his friend there's friends remembering him saying uh this is a quote from a friend of his he's a wonderful wit and a very good storyteller but there was always a sort of brittle quality to his humor. There's always a little bit of an edge to it. Something, you know, not quite, not quite happy go lucky always. Um, and, uh, you know, he also had a little bit of a thing where he, the stories he told though charming tended to, um, you know how oftentimes people who are very funny will oftentimes, and they're good storytellers, they'll often tell a story that's somewhat self-deprecating, right? It's a story yeah. about how they got into a situation that was so, it was like, look how dumb, this is, this is this dumb thing I did yesterday, right? And it's his stories tended to be about, look at this really smart thing that I did, right? It's a subtle, <laughs> like, kind of, like with this, I was very, I did this thing and I was so perceptive and, and, and. I don't think it necessarily, according to his friends that are discussed in his biography, I don't know the alienated people, but I think it was kind of indicative of only child told by his mother how brilliant he was under the pressures of kind of trying to live up to that. But didn't have the knock around situation that you have with maybe an older sibling where you kind of get put into check a little bit or um, or or even the competitive nature of having a younger sibling. It's it's a little bit of an older child thing, potentially for some people, not always. And I think it is you do see a little bit of the Thelma decoying influence, kind of the 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 what are now slight pathologies that might grow into bigger pathologies. You kind of see them spurting out. So um, an early practitioner of the humble brag. Yes, yeah, exactly. For sure. No, that was, I think definitely in college time, that was definitely John Kennedy tool. Um, he also developed a deep and abiding and lifelong love for booze during college. Uh, particularly, hey. particularly liquor. Uh, I mean, yeah, that's, <laughs> hey, did Dan it. just refilled right. his drink. Yeah, uh, we got yep. three writers yep. on the I'm pod uh, talking yep. about a drunk writer. Right. Well, on my way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so no, so no, no surprise there. Uh, he would. I mean, in the thing is, in the biography, it doesn't seem like it was 
I don't, we're not talking about a raging alcoholic. I think we're talking about, I mean, I don't know. It seems like Kevin, I know you've been to New Orleans. I don't know, Dan, if you've been down there. It's just the heavy drink in town. Oh, yes. I think, you know, you know, every weekend, just the craziness. It's, 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 yeah. So I think it was some of that. Two plus he's in college in in New Orleans. So of course he's, well, it's very hot down there and you have to have, uh, (laughs) it's just, it's, it's tactical. Tactical yes. alcoholism. Yes. Yes. Mm. Um, he also dabbled a little bit in uh, Benzedrex, which a lot of people in the 50s did. I mean, this is the mm. Benz- Benzedrine is the secret ingredient to the entire beat literature movement. Um, so this is not uncommon that people were, you know, there are these little amphetamine derivative inhaler things. Um, uh, that doesn't seem to have been a problem, but it is kind of interesting because there are a couple points where John Kennedy tool does mostly seem like he's living in his own cultural bubble. But then you do see moments where he kind of bumps up against what, what else is going on in the rest of the world. And I think this is kind of one of them. Um, something else he's doing in college is he's, he's becoming intimately familiar with every nook and cranny of New Orleans. He Mm -hmm. thought he loved New Orleans kind of you know he loved it he probably had slight love-hate relationship with it most importantly he thought it was hilarious everything about (laughs) new orleans cracked him up right (laughs) i love that i love that yeah and he would talk even then he was talking about in college it's not clear he was working on it but he would tell people sometimes he's like one day i'm gonna write a novel that really explains this whole latin madness that's going on in this city yeah. yeah, I mean, yeah. I think Dunce is really, and people have said it before me, of course, uh, mm-hmm. is a love letter to New Orleans. It, it it is with with kind of warts and all too. You yeah, know, it's not. It's he's trying to show it, and 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 I think there was. We might talk about it a little bit later after publication. There was some resistance. I mean, I think some people kind of some New Orleans people took it kind of personally, but it was ultimately <laughs> it was ultimately embraced, you know, and there's a statue of John Kennedy tool down there and murals of him. And ultimately it's it's seen as this like uh, it put New Orleans on the map kind of thing, which yeah. it was already on the map. But but there's there's a there's a sort of a mutual appreciation, I think, has ultimately developed between the book and the city. Um that's interesting because it probably the biggest thing after streetcar uh, for the for that town. I would say in the, like, in the yeah in the in the sort of post war. Um, well, I don't know. I guess I don't know. Remember when streetcar was written? But yeah, 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 yeah. For, interesting. For sure. Yeah. Hmm. Um, after Tulane, he goes to um, and he's young, right? Because he graduated early. So I think he was only at Tulane for three years. Um, cause 1958, yeah, 1958, he's 21. Um, actually he wouldn't even be 21 yet. He'd be 20 becoming 21 at the end of 1958. He gets awarded a Woodrow Wilson fellowship to study his ma- for his master's degree at Columbia. And so he moves well, hey. everybody's, everybody's favorite president, good old <laughs> Woody Wilson, not controversial at all at Columbia, right. that huh? guy. at Columbia. Oh, yeah. yeah. Love it. I've Love the federal heard reserve. about that school. I don't know. Big a little bit fan. about it. Yeah. 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 Columbia. <laughs> mm. Um, he, that's in New York, right? A, uh, somewhere <laughs> in New York. Yeah. yeah. I think that, isn't that, that's where the ghostbusters went. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Um, Who would stack books like this? Uh, he, uh, he, he, Oh, this is, I want to, I want to get, I, 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 one thing I want to convey is I, and I didn't realize this. I mean, I knew he was gifted. Obviously if you write Confederacy of Dunces, you're, you're 
a talented person. But I, my conception of him and, and something I like about doing this about the show is I realize I have these preconceived notions about these people like John Kennedy Tool, without really knowing that much about him. And I thought of him basically as Ignatius Riley. That was kind of who he was. Yeah, I, I think most people do think that way about him. Yeah. And are surprised to learn that he's only partially Ignatius. Right, 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 <laughs> right. Yeah. And so you learn this thing and you're like, well, he's like kind of like a prodigy. I mean, he he takes a course load at Columbia that gets him a master's degree in a year. So he has a master's degree from Columbia in English literature before he turns. Well, let's see. He would be 21 when he gets it. Right. It's pretty heavy. It's yeah. pretty, wow. it's pretty big yeah. deal. He, he finishes mm. his master's in a year. Now, I thought it was interesting what he actually wrote his uh, thesis on because it was somebody I'd never heard of before. He wrote his thesis on this writer named John Lily or Lily, L-Y-L-Y. Somebody I, I'd never, uh, weirdly Nor, enough, had never even heard of. Nor have I. Yeah. Um, mm. So I, I looked into it. And I was like, well, okay, who's this guy? And can it tell us anything about Confederacy of Dunces or, you know, or anything? Um, so I'm going to just read a little bit from Wikipedia because it is actually pretty interesting. Uh, John Lilly, uh, born 1553, died 1606, was an English writer, dramatist, uh, courtier, and parliamentarian. He was best known during his lifetime for two books, one called Euphues, The Anatomy of Wit, and the sequel, Euphues and His England 15, in 1580. <clears throat> Excuse me. But is perhaps best remembered now for his plays. Lily's distinctive and much imitated literary style, named after the title character of his two, two books, is known as a euphuism. Okay, now what is a euphuism? Euphuism is a peculiar mannered style of English prose. Okay, so it takes his name from it takes his name from this John Lily guy. It consists of a precociously ornate uh, and sophisticated style employing a deliberate excess of literary devices, uh, basically for the purposes of humor, right? So I'm going to give you just an example from John Lilly of what a euphuism. It is virtue, yea, virtue, gentlemen, that maketh gentlemen, that maketh the poor rich, the base-born noble, the subject of sovereign, the deformed beautiful, the sick whole, the weak strong, the most miserable happy. There are two principal and peculiar gifts in the nature of man, knowledge and reason. The one commandeth and the other obeyeth. These things neither the whirling wheel of fortune can change, neither the deceitful cavillings of worldlings separate, neither sickness abate, neither age abolish. And apparently this was the height of humor in 1580. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. But what I do think is it's still better than Nanette. Well, OK, uh. fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> what I do think is interesting, whereas I don't think it's that funny to us now because we can't necessarily distinguish that from what we expect of 1580s writing. But if you kind of pair it with this 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 description of what he's doing, this euphuism, right? He's 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 stacking all these literary devices on in a repetitive manner, almost to make fun of of pseudo sophistication. Yeah, which is what is sort of what Tool does, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, with, of, in, in the character of Ignatius, like clearly his right. practiced erudition is and i mean that that is something that in nutcranker i definitely yeah, kicked up into mastered. high gear yeah yeah where so like you you grow uh tired of the the main character's pretensions <laughs> to the right. point where you just want to throttle this guy right right right, right. i also love that the, the, it's called nutcranker 
I love it. <laughs> oh, thank you. Yeah. It's, uh, yeah. Just uh, for, for our listeners, Nutcranker is the name of a, uh, a pornographic website <laughs> where the main character, Spencer Grunhauer, writes his, uh, his treatise critiquing <laughs> modernity. On the in the in the comments section of this pornography website, Nutcranker. Right, because he gets banned off of uh, the other platforms. Yeah, right? so he gets yeah. banned off of what is essentially 4chan, 4chan. or 4 yeah. 4chan, and yeah. he, yeah. Uh, you know, the, his only the only platform left to him is this porn site. Oh man, I remember reading it was like I remember uh, it's it. so funny as I was coming. I was like, why is this thing called Nutcranker? Like every every everything else made sense. I was like, I love this book, but I'm you know thirty pages or whatever why is this book called nut drink <laughs> and then <laughs> and then when it happens <laughs> yeah. oh oh man yeah i can't say enough i honestly i'm serious i can't say enough good things yeah yeah it's coming you. out coming out soon make sure yeah. you follow uh dan on the bird website it's mm-hmm. baltic underscore dan is that right dan that's right baltic oh, underscore right. dan on uh in on Nutcranker, Spencer, his followers are called his nut buddies. So <laughs> you 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 can follow me on Twitter and be my nut buddy. Oh wait, is there a Spencer Grunhauer Twitter account? Oh, not yet. Man. Not oh, yet. There oh, should be. There should that, be. I, maybe I will in yeah, conjunction with this actual release. You didn't Very have to write, good idea. You don't even have to write anything new. You just drop. Yeah, no, I, I really just could. Yeah. I honestly, mm. yeah. yeah. You already did like, all the work to make that a banger Twitter account. So. Yeah, no, I just like did a uh, an Ignatius quote on Twitter before we we came okay. on, and yeah. uh, it already has like a bunch of likes. Yeah. I don't know if people even know that it's no, uh, a tool, not. but awesome. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's it's yeah, that's uh, yeah. So I was really interested in this. I almost wanted to dig into deep this John Lilly thing because it's like okay, so he somehow tool picks up this John Lilly character who the three of us who are fairly well educated in the world of letters none of us know have even heard of this guy tool somehow picks him out of total obscurity and appears to me to be actually significantly influenced from it maybe not by the line by line writing but at least this concept of how you can arrive at a kind of dramatic irony humor right you can yeah you can make something if you make something overly sophisticated it becomes hilarious somehow um i I love it yeah yeah Um, does yeah um so a couple other things in new york just talking about because john kennedy tool in new york is a is to me is an interesting picture you know we talk about this guy who's a who's a who's on one hand a very serious student but on the other hand is a little bit of a goofball i mean he's he's a storyteller he's very funny he's you know he's apparently an incredible dancer of all things um you know grew up he's he's like a grown-up theater kid in some ways um and then but he's from the south and you plug him into new york in the late 50s uh, early 60s. Um, and I just have a little bit I want to read from this bio about this. Can I ask, um, do we have any idea where he was living in New York? Was he living near Columbia or um, in Harlem? Or I, don't I wonder. I know at this time where he was living, actually. Um, mm-hmm. Later on, he goes back, and I know he's living like right next to Hunter College. Okay. Which I don't know if anybody knows where that is. My, uh, my New York geography is not that good. Oh, you do? Okay. I'm a New Yorker here. Okay. All right. You, you know. I will go that far. <laughs> all right. Yeah. Well, I, that narrows it down to about 6 million people <laughs> or whatever. <laughs> I'm one of them. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Okay. So here's a, here's a bit. He, he met a girl in New York who was from New Orleans. He would always do this when he was out 
when he was in New York and he spent a fair amount of time there, he would always hang around other people from New Orleans. That was his favorite people to spend time with, right? He's, it's expats. Again, New Orleans is a sort of a foreign country. This is like an American going to, you know, Japan to teach English and hanging out with other Americans. Um, since Ken, uh, and this is from the Neville uh, and Hardy biography again, since Kevil, Kevin, excuse me, since Ken loved to dance, one of his favorite places was the Roseland Ballroom. Ken and Ruth would dance all night for $2. This was something that the couple did alone. The big band sound was outdated for, to most young people in, in those days when Buddy Holly was topping the charts, but Ken and Ruth loved the live orchestra at the old dance palace. As the youngest and liveliest couple on the floor, they attracted a great deal of flattering attention. They would dance until the place closed, uh, closed fueled only by soft drinks since no liquor was allowed. Ken and Ruth kept steady company that year and were fond of each other. The story of their relationship has always been a confusing one, and this is partially due to Catherine herself. So make a point here. This is going to talk about more in the after dark. Interesting that he's going on like every weekend. He's going dancing till the wee hours of the morning with this woman, and it never becomes physically intimate whatsoever. Uh, that seems almost impossible to me. <laughs> I mean, clearly, he has not read Hartiste. Yeah, he is not uh, <laughs> not familiar with the game. Yeah, but um, right, right. Mm, yeah, so that, that was a later development. In yeah, culture. yeah, that came that came. He didn't see that one coming, right? Yeah, very interesting. Um, he gets this, so he gets this degree from Columbia again, impressively. Twenty-one years old, master's degree from Columbia. That's um, you know, that's that's a that's a that's a real accomplishment as far as I'm concerned. Um, yeah, he. Uh, moves back to Louisiana and he gets a job at what at the time is called Southwestern Louisiana Institute. It eventually be turned into uh, the University of Louisiana at Lafayette. So he's not quite in New Orleans. He's in Lafayette, um, which is, you know, it's driving distance, obviously, but it's not quite New Orleans. And I think this was actually really good for Ken. This has been called by some people the year he taught, taught there. This is maybe the best year of Ken's life. Um, I think it was perfect for him geographically because he was in Louisiana, so he's comfortable there, but he's far enough away from New Orleans that he doesn't have to deal with Thelma all the time. He's kind of got the best of both worlds, right? And he can kind of create his own environment. Plus, he's, you know, he's this new teacher. He comes into um, um, uh, Southwestern Louisiana Institute. Make sure I'm calling it the right thing. Yes, SLI. And he is immediately everybody's favorite. He's this very young guy, very intelligent, fun. Uh, uh, he's got that. He's got that Columbia air. Like he's got some prestige, but he's he's a down home native son at the same time. And he quickly becomes like the favorite teacher at the school, but also like the favorite dinner guest. So the faculty all wants him to come hang out, and and the students all love him. Um, some students describe his classes as like. It was basically like a stand-up routine, but I also learned more than I did in all my other classes at the same time. So he's like a master. He's like a master teacher, I would say. And this is coming from, and he teaches for years, and we'll, we'll talk more about it. Um, he had a real, he had a real gift for teaching literature. Um, and one of his friends that he made there was this woman, Pat Rickles. There's this great documentary called The Omega Point, which. It's an intense name for a documentary about John Kennedy Tools. I mean, that's the name of a Don DeLillo novel. Yeah, that's novel. The, like, that creepy DeLillo novel that gets yeah, under your skin. Yeah, I'm not, interesting. I'm, not, I'm hmm. not even sure why it's called The Omega Point, but it's a pretty hmm. good documentary. 
they interview Pat Rickles, this this woman who is his friend. And, she, you know, she's much older because this documentary is made in like the late 90s. And she says, you know, his one year there was the most memorable year I had teaching at SLI for decades. Wow. Like there's people who've worked here for 20, worked there for 10 years in the same building as I do that I barely remember. And like John Kennedy tool before he was famous, before he was the John Kennedy tool, we know the author of Confederacy of Dunces made a real impression on people. People genuinely liked him. Though there was always this little bit of distance. There's always this, you can't, there's one final layer of the John Kennedy tool onion that nobody ever really felt like they could get through. Um, so, yeah. yeah. I mean, hence, uh, probably due to his compartmentalization of his personality. Yeah. I mean, w- w- was there ever anyone who truly knew him? I, that might be the. Yeah, I don't think that there was. I, yeah, I really don't. And, and, and you live, you live that well, if you live that way long enough, you, um, you sort of become probably a little bit alienated from yourself to some degree, you know, you're like, you're, I'm, I'm putting on this kind of show with these people and this kind of show with these people. And then yeah. like, there's no place in my life where I settle in and I'm actually me. Um, you know, I, I can imagine that's a, that's a kind of a tricky experience. Um, now here's, there's somebody that he meets at SLI, another teacher at SLI. And I'm going to read this description of this guy. And uh, it's, I think it's interesting. Yeah. Um, Okay. Let me find my spot. Uh, Not that page 55. Again, this is from the, this is from again, the Neville's and uh, Hardy biography. Um, uh, Let's see. Okay. Such a person, we're talking about somebody he's meeting at SLI. Such a person was Bob Byrne or Bob B-Y-R- I think it's Byrne, yeah. Byrne, yeah. English professor and certified eccentric. Byrne's Aunt May had taught Ken in elementary school, and both men were products of a New Orleans upbringing. In 1960, Byrne fascinated John Kennedy Toole, and according to many colleagues at SLI, he was the inspiration for the character of Ignatius J. Riley in the novel Ken Would Write. Byrne's area of specialization was the medieval period. He and Ken had many discussions about Boethius and the Wheel of Fortuna. (laughs) Later contended that Ken liked to talk about these things, but had no deep understanding of them. Uh, It was Byrne's personal idiosyncrasies that caused Ken to take special note. Byrne, who was forever talking about theology, geometry, and his rich inner life, played the lute and worried about his weight, uh, which had a tendency to balloon. Byrne had an aversion to driving a car and considered himself a devoted slob wearing baggy clothes in an unruly mix of odd colors. Then there was the hat. Just like Ignatius, Byrne had a deer stalker hat, but in red, not green. Byrne kept the ear flaps up and used the headwear as rain gear, and Ken gave him a bad time about it. Byrne admitted to others that there were some similarities between himself and Ignatius, but took care to point out the differences. The back garden of Byrne's house, although a fantasy landscape of stone lanterns and garden statuary, was neat and well-tended, something Ignatius would never have been able to accomplish. So, which is even <laughs> like an Ignatius-type thing to say. Well, he's nothing like me. Have not you seen my statuary? You know, it's like, yeah, yeah. Here, come and I'll, I'll play you some lute in, right. in my garden. Could Ignatius play the lute like this? It's like, yeah. So, <laughs> so yeah, maybe we can talk maybe more. This is kind of a good spot because... Again, I think people's conception of Ignatius Riley is that he's John Kennedy Toole and the two are practically the same person. But here we see that at least sort of aesthetically on the surface, he's pulling it from this guy he met and was friends with. 
Um, yeah, so maybe we can talk like, yeah, I don't know if we've got, you've got a little section here. Maybe we'll talk more about Confederacy of Dunces and Ignatius Riley. And yeah, 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 yeah. No, I mean, Ignatius, I think there's, you know, obviously a lot of speculation about uh, who Ignatius uh, was based on. Was it based on Tool? Was it based on this guy, Byrne? Was it? And, you know, I, I think, you know, honestly, we will not really know the answer, but certainly from the way you described it, you know, a, a guy walking around with like a, a hunter's cap who is fat and talking about Boethius. Yeah, that sounds a lot like <laughs> Ignatius J. Riley. Much him, yeah. So, uh, yeah. yeah, I mean, I'm sure he drew a lot of inspiration from this guy, but, uh, you know, also like... Uh, all writers, when you're writing a character, you know, as much as we are loath to admit it, some of ourselves go into that, uh, that character. So I, I'm sure that was also in effect. But I think one of the real uh, distinctions is that uh, Ignatius's character, from what we've, you know, from what you've described Tool to be a kind of charming man good dancer enigmatic fellow that people like were um you know wanted to be friends with liked him seemingly Mm -hmm. that is not ignatius not at all (laughs) like ignatius is known for being highly combative prone to domineering harangues and outbursts and like a great example of this and this sounds like something that um that you know tool himself would despite whatever political predilections he had growing up in the you know conservative south and having certain uh, views on race and what have you i don't think that um tool himself would have engineered the uh what uh, ignatius refers to as the crusade for moorish dignity which is uh ignatius he gets hired in his first job in many years to uh, be the uh, some sort of office worker, a clerk, a file clerk in the mm-hmm. Levi Pants Factory or the Levy Pants Factory, mm-hmm. and the factory workers are—they um, are all, you know, they are all black, and uh, he, being someone who is, you know, uh, a, a Christian humanist, but also in his own mind in a competition with this woman named Myrna Minkoff. And he wants to show her that he is more committed to the advancement of uh, marginalized peoples than she is, because this is her whole thing. And he wants to show that he's even better at that. He organizes a, uh, a sort of, not just a strike, but like a storming of the office by the factory workers, which she leads as a demagogue (laughs) and in in something he calls the crusade for Moorish dignity. (laughs) And, uh, and uh, of course it blows up in his face (laughs) and uh, he gets fired and, you know, it's a marvel. He's not arrested, but um, this clearly is not something that uh, tool himself would have done. No. Tool is, you know, a seemingly a a charming but relatively mild mannered man. Mm -hmm. And um he is not given to the type of um not that he he doesn't have kind of perhaps interesting ideas, not that he doesn't have ambitions or or you know what have you, but uh he he 
has the good sense to refrain from the types of uh, outlandish behavior and outbursts that um, Ignatius engages in. And, you know, maybe Byrne has more of this, and but, but I truly doubt anyone could remain employed by a university acting the way Ignatius acts. Right. So I think a lot of his behavior, a lot of Ignatius's behavior is, you know, and, and this is true, I think, for many novelists. Mm-hmm. I, I'm sure you, you would agree to some extent, Brad, yeah. that um, you create a character and then you give that character permission to do the things that, well, maybe not necessarily that you want to do, but that your imagination wants the character to do. Sure. Yeah, so, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So I think Ignatius is, you know, maybe one part um, this burn guy, uh, maybe one part drawn from the real life experience of Tool, but mm. uh, also substantially uh, Tool's it. Right. Right. And yeah, doing. Yeah. Yeah. I think that I think that's the best. I think that's the right way to put it. And also being I mean, it's funny you talk about the the, the crusade for Moorish dignity and trying to one up <laughs> Myrna, particularly. I mean, it makes me wonder. I think he we're going to see when he goes back to Columbia here in a second. I, I think he might be making a general parody or comment on activism as it is like is it really about this cause or is it about some kind of social one-upsman belonging to this thing, virtue signaling sort of, sort of thing. Right. Which is, you know, obviously very relevant to today. So like, and this was something that uh, my co-host Matt, Mm. Matt Pegas Mm. in preparing for our episode of Confederacy of Dunces, he read Dunces and he too was immediately struck by the fact that it, it's so, well anticipated the current political moment with stuff like virtue signaling stuff like and you realize that the the fights of today they were being fought in the 1960s yeah and i mean there it's a different playing field today and the perhaps the the fights have uh higher stakes but uh nevertheless you know yeah the, pa- the these pattern, dynamics yeah the patterns are certainly there he was definitely he he was he was there to see him and it, like this is this is the next thing that happens so after this year at SLI, he decides um, he's going to go back to Columbia um, and, and to, to get his PhD is the idea. He while he's at Columbia, this is another thing, because, again, I want to hit this note of, of that John Kennedy tool is sort of this wonderkind. He gets a position teaching at Hunter College. And at the time, he is the youngest professor that Hunter College has ever hired in 19 in 1960. Right. Um, so, again, he's not he, he's. And maybe I'm over stressing it, but like he's he's legit. He's you know he's a, a savant. He really is, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. And 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 they the kids the the students at Hunter loved him just as much as the as the students at SLI did. Um, he was quite he was quite good at it. Did he ever meet Tennessee? Not that I'm aware of. Yeah, yeah. yeah he probably like didn't have, have the crossed. level of he recognition yeah. or fame. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Tennessee he was, was already yeah. yeah. And, yeah. and and tools in the academic world much more, and he's not in the showbiz side of literature, right? He's in the he's in the he's in the academic side of literature for sure. Um, it was this time at Columbia was a little bit different. He felt a little bit more comfortable in New York. He's a little bit older. Yeah, he's only a year older, but in your early twenties, a year makes a big difference. Um, he's more comfortable in the city. Um, he's uh, he's you know 
he knows people, he knows places, he knows how to get by, you know, things are more expensive, he knows how to budget himself, all of these things. Um, but things are slightly different in even just, uh, you know, a year and some change, I guess it'd be a year and two, you know, a year and a summer or something like that. Um, and let me read this because this is now and it t- ties into the the aspect of uh, Confederacy of Dunces, Dan, that you were talking about. This is now when he was there before it was one thing. And now we're in 1960s. We're in the cause decade, the decade of the cause. Right. Mm. And this get, this flavors his experience at his second experience at Columbia a little bit differently. Um, <clears throat> so reading again from the Neville's and Hardy biography. Um in Dalt Wonk's article, Dalt Wonk is this like New Orleans uh, eccentric writer figure. I tried to find this article. I could not. But anyway, in Dalt Wonk's article on Tool, Ken is reported to have said that, quote, every time the elevator door opens at Hunter College, you are confronted by 20 pairs of burning eyes, 20 sets, sets of bangs, and everyone waiting for someone to push a Negro. As a white male from the Deep South, Ken was most li- was the most likely subject, which was something he resented. He was dismayed by the liberal brand of narrow-mindedness he discovered in New Orleans. Although New Orleans had always been publicly and politically segregated, there were among its people a tradition of tolerance, both religious and racial. Ken was shocked to find that in an integrated city like New York, there was a large degree of personal intolerance. In particular, he had trouble with the anti-Catholic sentiment of some of the students and faculty. Ken wasn't Christmas and Easter church gore, but he had a cultural commitment to Roman Catholicism. It was as much the a one part true of faith. Oh, yeah, I got to get it <laughs> in would, there. He would have got to get it in there. <laughs> <laughs> we kind of like we kind of just without trying always pick Catholics. Ah, uh, no, it just, yeah, this well, preponderance yeah. among but, artists. Yeah. It's not like, there's, yeah. it's not like there's we're not there's, going out of our, this is not a Catholic podcast. No, per se. it just happens. It just uh, comes yeah, up. Yeah, every episode. Very, very curious. Very interesting. Yeah. Hmm. yeah. Um, uh, he had a cultural commitment to Roman Catholicism. It was as much a part of him, of him as his fair complexion, and he couldn't understand why he should suffer scorn because of it. Uh, Emily Griffin, um, I think one of his students, once went to observe him teach. Oh, no, it was a, a, another professor. Uh, Emily Griffin once went to observe him teach and noticed that he had scrawled on the blackboard, quote, anti-Catholicism is the anti-Semitism of the intellectual. Oh, this didn't make the po- make points with the students. Unfortunately, his <laughs> arguments with them further undermined his authority as their teacher. Um, mm. So just interesting, right? Um, he's 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 sort of uh, he's pushed back by the what he called the liberal narrow mindedness of New York City. Now, at the same time, hmm. I don't want to I don't want to plunge him put him totally in the opposite direction of all of this because he was also very enthusiastic about the presidency of John F. Kennedy. Mm. Um, partially because probably because Kennedy was a Catholic, but he also seemed to be at least um, at least optimistic about what John F. Kennedy might bring to the table as a president. Um, yeah. So, so we can't, it, it, it's, it's too simplistic to just say he's uh he, anyway, I think you can see kind of where he's sitting and it's a little bit of an outsider thing, right? Cause he's a little bit outside of the South and he's a little bit outside of New York city when it comes to his sort of politics. I have to interject here. I, I did pull up the Wikipedia and there's a sentence that I want to read, right? Sure. He was teaching or he was uh, studied English at Columbia in New York while simultaneously teaching at Hunter college. He also taught at various 
Louisiana colleges. And during mm-hmm. his early career as an ac- academic, he was valued on the faculty party circuit for his wit and gift for mimicry. Yeah. The faculty party circuit. <laughs> <laughs> Do they? Ha- that doesn't what? exist anymore. <laughs> yeah, I, I, exist but, anymore. What a okay. All right. <laughs> yeah, I just yeah. thought that was funny. Yeah, Isn't that funny. Mm-hmm. Like, there's what it like every weekend. Yeah, every... like it's like it's the Rolling Stones. Oh, I gotta get. I gotta go to. I gotta. I gotta go hit the faculty party yeah. circuit. Yeah, <laughs> it's just a very. Yeah, no, I, I just yeah. assumed that universities during that era must have been a great time to be a professor. Oh, like, oh yeah, yeah, sure. I, just, I mean, like I imagine there really was a party circuit, and oh, like they're really? just all like you know Y'all chilling. Are... I mean, like, not that tenure isn't a thing now and not that professors don't live great lives, but, um, yeah, it really seems like vibe. Yeah. With this, Mm -hmm. he would be an adjunct now, right? Like if he came out with a master's degree from Columbia, you wouldn't even get a teaching position probably. Bro, he'd be a waiter. He'd be a, yeah. I mean, he, yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Things, yeah, things he'd, uh, he'd be uh, writing Nutcranker and trying yeah. to publish it on the internet. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> be, be podcasting. Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah. Oh, yeah, dude. Yeah. Oh, oh, that's so funny. So, okay. Yeah, <laughs> man. I just had this whole image of. Uh, never mind. Uh, <laughs> uh, let it go, Brad. Yeah, let it, let yeah, it go, yeah. Brad. Let's go let that go. Mm-hmm. Um, one thing of note in this Columbia time, because we're going to move out. Of, he was not at Columbia the second phase very long. He does room with this guy named kent uh tolliver it's not spelled tolliver but apparently it's pronounced tolliver um this is going to come up a little bit more in our after dark when we talk about this question of was what is up with john kennedy tools sexuality um but interestingly enough apparently at this time kent tolliver knew a guy named clint clay shaw and at some point either there in new york or in new orleans um, John Kennedy Tool met Clay Shaw. Well, okay, who's Clay Shaw? Clay Shaw is the only person ever put on trial associated with the John F. assassination of John F. Kennedy. Oh wow! Clay Shaw was this this New Orleans uh, playwright, um, kind of known uh, gay guy who uh, some apparently some conspiracy theorists still believe that he's caught up in it. He was a character in Oliver Stone's. I JFK. was about to say that's yeah. how I remember. Yeah. Yeah, the gay man from JFK. That's him. And apparently John Kennedy Tool met him um, at least on one occasion. And he was roommates with a good friend, you know, who who knows what all else of Clay Shaw's when he lived in New York City. So I just think that's interesting. Again, we're seeing uh, John F. Kennedy. John now now I've said (laughs) John F. Kennedy and now I'm not going to be able to stop saying it. John Kennedy Kennedy Tool. He seems like he's in his own bubble, his own bubble world, but it does brush up against the rest of the world, right? He's, he's, you know, he knows a guy who went to court for possibly assassinating the president, which is just, it's just kind of an interesting uh, position to be in in history. He um, got that around. Or- mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that, that New Orleans con- connection with the Kennedy assassination is, is pretty real. Yeah. Uh, I don't totally understand it, but Oswald lived there for a time, I believe. Yeah. Right? Yeah, I think there's a I whole believe section so. in Libra about that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, interesting. So something, mm. something's, something's brewing down there. I, mm. I was hoping that I was going to be able to pull a thread that somehow, you know, After Dark was going to be, John, did John Kennedy Tool kill John F. Kennedy? But <laughs> you could, you know what? You, you can, can make say, it happen. You can say yeah, anything you, you want. This is the yeah. internet. We can say anything. There won't <laughs> yeah. be any consequences for that. <laughs> right. Of course not. Kanye West has shown us the way. <laughs> yeah, I would show up tomorrow and be like, huh, I can't. My 
my debit card? How do you my debit cards not working? Well, this uh, this we can say, I think. We were yeah, not going to okay. lose our bank accounts no. for this one. No, <laughs> no, I don't think so. Right, right. The Vatican's not going to yeah. shut down our PayPal account. Not yet. You wait yeah. for it. Wait for the yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Christo fascism is coming to America <laughs> by way of the church. Oh, by man. way of John Kennedy tool. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Yeah, right. that's right. And his valve. Uh, <laughs> uh, so John Kennedy tool, Columbia, teaching at Hunter College. He gets his first year in. And then in the spring of 1961, you know, he's enjoying himself now. He's kind of settling into New York and it looks like he's going to get his Ph.D. from Columbia, which, uh, you know, part of the reason he wants to do this is he wants to increase his earnings potential, get a better teaching position. The teaching position down at SLI was good and he enjoyed it, but, but there was bigger and better things and he had the talent for it. Right. Um, also, as I said earlier, he's starting to be somewhat concerned about having to take care of his parents. So there's this kind of pressing, it's still somewhat in the future, but he knows that he's eventually he's got to make more money. Plus he's interested in it. Right. So, um, he's going to pursue this thing. And then in 1961, uncle Sam comes calling and he's drafted into the army. Now I read this and I was like, wait, 1961, a guy in a PhD program gets drafted into the, like, it didn't make any yeah. It didn't make any sense to me at first. And apparently this is a blind spot in my my historical knowledge. Apparently between the end of World War II and I think 1973, when the draft closed after Vietnam, the draft was open the whole time. Mm. And what they would do is they weren't drafting. Um, there was still a volunteer components in the army. So you weren't drafting infantrymen. You were drafting for positions that you needed to fill. Um mm. And one of these positions they needed to fill, of all things, was an English teacher. <laughs> <laughs> so you get this Columbia grad to do it, which to me seems a little, I, it feels like you could just draft, like, I don't know. I don't, it seems odd to me that this happened, but it did happen. Um, John Kennedy Tool, he ends up getting stationed at Fort Buchanan in Puerto Rico, of all places. Um, and be, mostly because he actually knew, he did know Spanish. Um, and I don't know. It's just kind of an interesting thing. You're studying at Columbia. There's not wartime. And all of a sudden you get a letter that's like, yeah, you have to go to Puerto Rico for the next two years. Like, wait, what? What do you mean? <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, you know, but at the other on the other hand, like, I guess if you're going to be in the army, this is not the worst possible assignment. Um, you go down to this school. There's a there's a sort of a gang of other English teachers who are also not really military people. They're all, they've all also been drafted and you get called into the school they're teaching basically what's happening is they've brought all these puerto ricans into the army and none of them can speak english and so this so so this school is for like cranking out and, and it's not like they were really they were like six weeks six week crash courses in english and at some point john kennedy tool says like we didn't really teach they didn't learn english like they they learned hello, goodbye, couple simple questions. Yes, you know, they learned, they could count to 10 or whatever, but they weren't really learning English. Um, nonetheless, uh, you know, there is tensions sort of happening. I mean, uh, this is November 1961 where he comes into, uh, he comes into Fort Buchanan. Fidel Castro had been in power for, in Cuba for only two years. So the Bay of Pigs thing, I think kicks, I think happens in 1962. I don't think I have it written anyway. So 
Tool is in Puerto Rico for some of this sort of Cold War drama. He doesn't really get pulled into it. You know, he never has to pick up a rifle. He's an English teacher, uh, but he's he's next door to it. And, you know, there's a little bit of paranoia. At one point, they do uncover a communist infiltrator at Fort Buchanan. Um, so, you know, it's it's sort of at the doorstep, but never really any kind of real significant risk um, as tool did every time he went someplace he did really really well and uh i think i think after several months i might have it here but after a few months he has um he is now running the school effectively he has he's managing he's teaching a couple classes but mostly he's managing all of the other teachers is his job mm. shortly after be shortly after getting there um, and, you know, again, we got to think he's not uh, old. He's he's only what, 1961. He would be 24. Um, you know, so he's pretty, pretty young guy still, really. Um, uh, and, you know, but at the same time, it's like he was this highly motivated teacher getting his Ph.D. from Columbia. And now he's in Fort Buchanan teaching a bunch of um, Puerto Ricans who he did not like a. <laughs> 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 wasn't really teaching them right like there wasn't enough time to actually teach them they didn't really want to learn um it's just not a there's just not really much positive about this experience right um yeah. so um let me read a couple of letters i want to give you a sense of like because here's the other thing this is actually where in puerto rico is where tool really learns to write i think this is where he actually becomes tool the writer who ends up writing uh confederacy of dunces and there's some okay there's some interesting letters that he writes so um, this is kind of the bridge between the neon bible and confederacy of dunces because he had I, I, to have I, grown yeah. as a writer at some point yeah if and not it continuously seems, right and i don't think he was writing a lot of he wasn't submitting anything there's no like short stories there's not like a collection of short stories he wrote before this or something it seems like he wrote neon bible set it aside followed the academic line and then in puerto rico was like all right now i'm gonna start i'm gonna start writing yeah um, and uh i'm gonna read a couple of letters because he's writing a, a ton of letters home to, to mom and dad mostly to mom <clears throat> here's one from early on um uh, let's see we are in the middle of a cycle now Fortunately, my current group of recru recruits is as pleasant as the others were. As I perhaps wrote before, these recruits are almost all volunteers, victims of unemployment in the mountains and, su and, su and as such are somewhat like characters from a Puerto Rican version of the Grapes of Wrath. One, <laughs> one claimed he was a Cuban, an exile from Castro. However, it is developed that he was really from San Sebastian, Puerto Rico, and had read too avidly some stories of Cuba today. Now the class, is call the class calls him El Cubano Artificial. Uh, in Puerto Rican Pueblos, uh, sorry, in Puerto Rican Pueblos, the usual number of stonings, incendiary suicides, and machine machete slangs are taking place. The police are shooting innocent bystanders, and the bleachers in the ballpark collapse Sunday. Cara, uh, que muchos accidentes, hey. I've been reading uh, and reading, and otherwise all is peaceful. I think that last bit is a joke, but it might have also been happening. It's like not clear. He's saying it in a funny tone, like like uh, the police are shooting innocent bystanders, and the bleachers in the ballpark collapsed Sunday. But like he's also saying, yeah, everything's good though. See you later. Interesting. <laughs> yeah. Um, here's another little bit. Uh, 
Uh, Monday, I was chosen to be Soldier of the Month of Fort Buchanan. Candidates were sent from every unit on post. A military board quizzed us on military subjects and knowledge and current events. We were also judged on appearance, bearing in uniform. For winning, I am to receive dot, 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 ten dollars. <laughs> it's just like, uh, let's see if I can find another one. Uh, let's see. Uh, as I, as I was looking out of uh, the office a few minutes ago, I saw an ambulance drive up to one of the Company B classrooms. The instructor of the class, whom I knew, know, is a very passive scholarly Yale graduate, and I suspected that he had finally passed out from asking, what is this? Who are you? Do you like to eat fried chicken? A moment or so <laughs> later, the body of a trainee was brought out on a stretcher and slipped into the ambulance while a group of excited trainees gathered around the scene screaming in Spanish. And Mish, the instructor, looked on with his slouch and his permanently doleful expression, probably wondering how fate had brought him to this uh, erratic island. Later, someone to me uh, later someone explained to me that the Puerto Ricans often pass out or suffer from closed stomachs whenever their diet is changed from rice and beans and dried salt codfish. And now I remember a trainee telling me, telling me about his experiences during his first days in Chicago. And then he goes on like this several sentence long. Uh, very dialecty Puerto Rican uh, expression <laughs> that I'm not even going to try to do, but it's like several sentences of him writing in like heavy Puerto Rican accent. Um, and then he writes something in this uh, too, in the same letter um, he's referring to his father. And I know we haven't talked about his father much, but he here's where he kind of comes back in. Hmm. Um, he's talking to his father. The new refrigerator looks wonderful. All those solid ice, uh, all those solid ice cubes and hard ice cream exclamation point. I hope this model has no ice freer so that we can avoid the continual search and those doomsday warnings written on the kitchen wall in red Crayola. And I read that and I was like, what does this mean? Doomsday warnings written on the kitchen wall in red Crayola. It turns out John Sr. was losing his mind. Oh, yeah. I noticed that from your notes. Yeah. That, like, uh, yeah. And yeah, it, it, it had started out like it gradually is it happening gradually. And then like when when Ken is in Puerto Rico, it like ramps up and he's like hearing messages and he's looking for listening devices. And he thinks every car in the street is like out to get him. He thinks um, he thinks people are honking at them like he becomes very, very paranoid. And is gradually starting to just like wander around the house, kind of lost in his own world. Mm, sad. And it's really, it really is. And 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 you know, this is a guy who had been. Because said, we said before, um, you know, he hadn't been a Columbia graduate or anything, but he'd been the state debate champion. And you know, whatever we think about debate club or whatever, you know, that's a charismatic, extroverted kind of person who's yeah. who can participate in the world at the very least, right? And he's over time is just sort of lost. And Tool basically stops communicating with him to a certain extent because he, he kind of can't. There's a there's a there's a barrier, and, and John Senior's like doesn't talk to anybody hardly after a while. Yeah. Um, and of yeah. course, in that era, you know, mental illness was not uh, treated. I mean, like, obviously, yeah. there are arguments about how mental illness is treated today. But yeah. uh, certainly, I think we have a little more insight into schizophrenia. and stuff. Yeah. Of that nature. Yeah. We at least now, like, whether it's the right thing or not, I think now somebody would say, oh, we should get him into a psychiatrist and like, see if there's a solution for this. And then it was just like, well, he's. That's what he does. Yep. Yep. So <laughs> that's, how, that's his life now, I guess. Yeah. 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 So, so that, that, that pattern continues. Is basically think about that happening sort of in the background to all of this. Um, 
now read a couple other things. Um, again, I think he's kind of developing some of his style here. He's writing a lot of letters and he seems to have time for it. Here's yeah. another one from later in 1962. <clears throat> Actually, the English instructors are in many ways a hilarious group. All college graduates, some with advanced degrees, they exist here in an alien society. During the inspections, several were used to cut grass and paint buildings, and they inadvertently lost one lawnmower, a lawnmower wheel, and a shovel. Our immediate superiors, all of whom are Puerto Rican, are wild and excitable and unpredictable, <laughs> and the combination of English instructors and Puerto Rican cadre in an uneasy alliance full of sound and fury and improbably funny happenings. The incident of the missing lawnmower wheel was magnified so greatly that it almost split Company A asunder. As leader of the English instructors, I have a foot in both worlds with my psyche dangling between them. Um, there's another part where he says something like, what will the world ever find to do with the Caribbean and Latin America? Um, there's a bit here, since this is Art of Darkness, we should probably say it. Uh, where did it go? Uh, um, again, talking about his time in Puerto Rico. I don't know if I'm going to be able to find it. Here. Yeah, this is just such an interesting period for him. And then trying to think about him being in New Orleans, being so precocious. Mm -hmm. Did he get his PhD? And I'm sorry if I missed well, that. No, no, no. Okay. We're going to get no. to, we're going to get to okay. that. So it's been split. I'm going to give a couple. There's one more sort of story about okay. the time in Puerto Rico I want to get to. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. And this, you know, I want to paint this picture of he's writing a lot of letters. You know, his personality is coming through. He does eventually get a typewriter that he borrows from somebody. And this is where it's where and he finally gets an office based on his station. Right. He's been elevated to being kind of, a, you know, a manager. He's like a sergeant major. I, I'm, not, I'm not good with military hierarchy. I don't know what's what, but he's in charge of a bunch of people. So he gets a little office and that's where Confederacy of Dunces at least starts. But there's some weirdness happening too. So he, one thing that's going on here, it sounds kind of crazy. Um, he gets really into drinking. Not that it's crazy to get that into alcohol in uh, the military, but let me read this passage. <clears throat> um, uh, this is talking about all of the people in his company. The most common complaint in the company, aside from a general feeling of aggravation, was headache. A primary cause of this was the fact that the army in Puerto Rico seemed to promote inebriation. The soldiers and especially the instructors drank excessively. Booze was cheap and readily, readily available on the post. There were free rum nights every week in the NCO club. Drinking in the barracks was continuous and caused no end of arguments and trouble in the ranks. Some instructors stayed intoxicated for days on end and no one cared enough to reprimand them. Uh, Tool would have been a person who would have reprimanded them, right? He was in that yeah. position. Pharmaceutical drugs were readily available and there was little control over the gallon-sized containers of medication. The most popular drug was 10 grains of aspirin laced with caffeine. Excuse me. This was known as APC or Emperin, uh, or sorry, or Emperin compound. These tablets were self-dispensed by the handful to alleviate chronic hangovers. Medications of all sorts were available on a take-as-needed basis. This rough, constant partying became a problem for Ken, who showed signs of becoming a heavy drinker even before coming to the island. In a letter to his friend Joel Fletcher, Ken describes the Army faculty as, dis, uh, as dissimilar draftees who shared an, af an affection for liquor. He reports enjoying a few rums mixed with lemon and water at the end of the day and also praises the village of Ponce along the southern coast for having a, a, a hotel with a great bar and an excellent staff to dispense his favorite tropical libations. Um, so drinking heavily, partying heavily. Um, and then there's one other little aspect to this, one little other little quirk. Apparently, within the instructors, there's a sort of a clique develops that they're, frankly, they're a bunch of gay guys. 
and they are and you can imagine i mean try to imagine what this is like it's the 60s you're and you know imagine being i imagine being a gay dude in the 60s getting in the army sent off to a tropical island and then there's a but there's happens to be a handful of other young gay dudes around and you have a job that has almost no responsibilities and free flowing <laughs> alcohol. It's a little bit of a it's a little bit of a chaotic, <laughs> um, yeah. a, a chaotic situation to have. And Tool is like responsible for these people, and he doesn't really know what to do with it. I mean, there's no indication that he participates in it, but he doesn't know he doesn't know what to do with it. And it's gradually going off the rails. And at the start of it. The other instructors who are, you know, all these fairly liberal minded people who are trying to be cool about it, um, they it kind of develops. And at first it's like, OK, well, the gay comp the gay guys in the company, they all hang out in their own thing and fine, whatever. Um, but eventually they, it becomes the partying becomes too much. They become too loud. The flirtation and all that activity starts to spill out into the rest of the company and all these tensions develop and tool the guy who probably should have tried to rein this in and maintain some kind of military type order doesn't do anything about it. And this all escalates to the point where at one point um, uh, there was some lover spat between two of these guys. And the one guy, maybe on purpose, maybe on accident, OD'd on this AMP stuff or APC stuff, this aspirin caffeine combination. And uh. Tool finds him passed out, you know, maybe dead. And like stands near the body waiting to see if he wakes up for maybe a half an hour. So this person that he's responsible for, right? He's the, he's this guy's uh, sergeant or whatever um, comes in, sees the body and just kind of waits there. It's like, <laughs> I don't know what to, you know, doesn't do anything. And the other people eventually, luckily the guy lives. Um, but, I think there was like this tension or like, okay, hopefully he wakes up so we don't have to deal with this. If we have to deal with this, we have to explain why to some commanding officer someplace, why this place is completely off the rails. And it was yeah. tools, tools responsibility to keep it on the rails. Right. And so I think he had this like moment of crisis. Like I can't, if I do the thing I should do, I'm going to get in more trouble. Anyway, it, it sowed a lot of, it, it made opinions about tool within the company um, very negative. He was almost court-martialed for it. And Interesting. Some, somebody almost, somebody apparently decided that like it was opening up a whole can of worms that if they court-martialed him, all this stuff about it being a lover spat between these two guys and this gay clique and the company getting off the rails, all that would have to come out. And it was just easier to kind of keep it all under wraps. But I would um, like to jump in and say sure. that this parallels the uh, experiences of Ignatius J. Riley in the workforce. Mm. Uh, Riley, uh, he, you know, I mean, both Riley and the character Mr. Gonzalez, who was responsible for managing uh, Levy Pants Factory, uh, well, actually more the character of Mr. Gonzalez, who was not able to control Riley. And Riley, um, you know, led the uh, crusade for Moorish dignity, which, you know, upended the office and and, and what have you. And uh, the, in general, like there was a lot of focus in the novel on managers unable to control a, a spiraling situation that uh, that also was ultimately not um, the perpetrators were not adequately punished. Mm -hmm. Like uh, mm -hmm. 
Ignatius was fired, but he, you know, very well could have been prosecuted or something. But I think in Dunces, they decided, or there was some allusion to the idea that like it would have been more trouble than it's worth and brought uh, ignominy, (laughs) you know what I mean, (laughs) Uh, onto, onto the whole affair. Interesting. Yeah, he probably did. He probably did borrow a little bit of that for sure. Yeah. yeah. Interesting. Um, and, you know, this is the same time period where um, he's starting to write Confederacy of Dunces. There's there's indications in his letters to his parents that he's writing confe- uh, writing something anyway. I don't even know if he derived at a title yet. Um, and he's, you know, typing away on this borrow- borrowed typewriter, um, sharing, apparently sharing some bits of it with a, a friend that he'd made in, in the army who th- thought it was quite good. Um, and so, yeah, integrating kind of bringing these bringing these these aspects of the stuff that's actually happening around it. But again, you see that that sort of refraction. It's it's sort of thematically something that happened in his life, but not actually something that happened in his life. Um, and I think this is a good point. We're thinking about we're the part of the story where um, um, Tool is actually writing Confederacy of Dunces. I want to ask about Nutcranker a little bit. Absolutely. Um, some of these questions that I find interesting, I think I think other people find interesting too. What can you tell us about the process of Nutcracker? Like maybe where did the idea come from? I know it's kind of a silly question sometimes, but like what's the tell us about how that came to be, what the process was like for you? Absolutely. So, I mean, this is something that um, is uh, perhaps um I'm not super unique, but uh, many other writers do find my process to be somewhat unique. I um, I just start writing. I I mean, for for literary fiction, I think it's a different story. Um, but you know, if if I were writing commercial fiction, if I were writing a thriller, a Tom Clancy novel, if I were writing uh, a screenplay or even a play, I would think more about structure. I would storyboard. I would this. I would that. But my um, process, my practice for writing Nutcranker or writing any literary fiction is to write until I find a voice that I like. And so I did that. I wrote until I found Ignatius's voice. And then I just started writing and, and I saw where his voice uh, took me. And so I would routinely stay, I would say, two steps ahead of Ignatius. Uh, not Ignatius Spencer. I was going to say, yeah, there we go. Yeah, yeah, I, I was going to. I would yeah, say, yeah, yeah. Spencer is Spencer is so insufferable. He's he's great. He's yes. great. And oh, he's, yeah. he, well, thank you. Yeah, 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 yeah. A lot of fun. Yeah, well, it surprises it, it surprises it me out. to hear hear you say that you're not like doing a whole lot of outlining because I actually think it, the plot of Nutcranker is actually quite strong in that like everything like leads to the next thing in a very absolutely I mean, yeah yeah so I yeah. mean it, it does that so I I would write it and I would stay like two steps ahead of Spencer and I would like generally know where I wanted to take it I had some ideas about you know how it would um the climax and the the eventual ending but um I in general um let Spencer take me there so mm-hmm. If I came to a juncture and let's say um, he was supposed to uh, seduce 
his uh, ex-girlfriend's uh, sister. And it, I'm, I'm there and I'm like, well, wait, she would never sleep with Spencer, I realize. Mm-hmm. Well, well, no. So I, that's going to go horribly wrong. That's going right. to, right. you know, and so I, <laughs> I had to um, be true to the character at every juncture. Mm-hmm. And that kind of takes you where you want to go as mm-hmm. as a novelist. That, mm-hmm. that That's my experience. So, yeah, when I got to um, when I got to the end, the kind of twist, it has a real twist ending uh, that was not planned. That oh, really? was just, yeah, no, not. Yeah, exactly. I kind of wondered almost like if that was what I was reading, I almost wondered and we don't want to give it away, obviously, but like I almost wondered when I read, I was like, I wonder if this is the first thing he came up with. Like, oh, absolutely and then the not. Book, like, yeah, interesting. If, if anything, and I think this is not too um, too much to give away. He, um, the Spencer Grunhauer is, you know, he in, has a uh, a romantic relationship of sorts with <laughs> a uh, a socially progressive woman that he hopes to indoctrinate into his, uh, you know, very. Uh, not just conservative, but uh, very traditionalist worldview and, and perhaps extreme and, and weird worldview in many respects. And he attempts to do this through a sort of erotic project that uh, that goes awry. And so uh, she breaks up with him. He goes through a bit of a downward spiral. And it uh, seems like it might be headed in a bit of an Elliot Roger direction, shall we say. Mm-hmm. And... Um, you know, I'm, I don't, I'm not going to give anything away I, or I'm going to try not to, but uh, as I was writing it, you know, certain things just didn't make sense. And mm. I just, um, you know, I, I didn't know exactly what he, where this spiral would end, where it would right. take him. But like, e- even if I had wanted to do something that was more like the ending of a, a Chuck Palahniuk novel, you know, that wasn't really who Spencer was. That wasn't yeah. really who... And so, like, I find my process is to write in the voice of the character. The character will tell you where you need to go, where you're supposed to go. And and what's more, you will never have a moment that is inauthentic because that's that's what I hate when when I'm reading something and I can tell that the the writer, the author is trying to figure out what the character would say or do. And like, and there's this real disjunction between the words and the character, but um, it sounds like an almost a woo woo thing. But uh, if you're in the mind of the character, you never have a false step. Right. And, and what's more, if you have a funny character voice, uh, that's going to carry through. And that's going to a, a writing professor in college told me that you can never have it all has to be the good part. You can't have pages. <laughs> right. Yeah, you, you can't right. have pages that are leading up to the good part. Every right. page has to be the good part. Right. And when you are uh, in the voice, uh, in a character voice, that's engaging, that's entertaining every page is going to be the good part because yeah. it's in that, that kind of voice that, you know, you've judged to be interesting in its own right. Sure. Yeah. Well, dude, you, I mean, you, I remember reading it and being, I don't know, 10, 15 pages in or so <laughs> and laughing and laughing my ass off, but also having this thing like, 
how the hell is he going to be able to maintain this for the like, like, it, you know what I mean? That register, that voice is like, how is he going to like, how is this book going to stay like this for this long? And I mean, you did it. And I was that was why I kept being impressed. But like, I remember that early on, like, man, this is like a high wire act uh, that yeah. I like I like I was on I was as a writer I was sort of on suspense like is he gonna be able to stay on this high wire for however many pages it is like it's a tricky act to pull off and you totally do so oh, kudos thank you. Man. yeah 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 no I've had people say that you know it's uh they couldn't wait to get out of Spencer's head yes so uh I think that is also like a <laughs> that's it's a huge like compliment it's, yeah, yeah it's yeah. hope you know hopefully it's funny but it's also like you're in the in the mind of this deranged guy for yeah. a very long time yeah. so yeah. uh yeah no i'm uh thank you thank you yeah, for, dude, uh, i love it i love it i love it yeah. we're gonna uh, promote the heck out of it when it when it finally drops for sure thank you um yeah um so let's talk a little bit more we'll get back on the on the john kennedy tool train um he comes back to the united states <clears throat> he's got kind of two priorities now he wants to finish this book and he wants to make some money because he primarily needs money for his parents. Um, and this is kind of, it's a little bit, he moves back in with his folks and that's the last house that tool lives in. So after this being to New York, being to Lafayette teaching, being to Puerto Rico, Columbia for a PhD, he ends up living with his parents, um, for the last years of his life. He gets, um, He's working on finishing up the the book. Excuse me. He gets a job at St. Mary's Dominican College. Excuse me. Um, which actually paid pretty well. Um, and he was he was with his education. He was one of the more prestigious members of the faculty. Um, and it was a pretty easy workload too. He was making decent money. I don't have a figure, but he, it was expressed as being pretty good money. And he's only teaching ten hours a week. So it's you know it's not a crazy workload. Um, uh, he was really well liked there. They say, go where you're wanted. The nuns at the college adored him. Apparently he was very popular with the students, some of whom even developed crushes on him, uh, <laughs> uh, which he didn't do anything about, of course. Uh, and, uh, oh, and, and they, the faculty apparently knew he was writing this novel and were sort of cheering him on. So he has this moment where like, he's got this book that's almost done. He's excited about it. He's at this job where he feels like it makes sense for him. He actually enjoys doing it. He's wanted to be there. He's good at teaching. He, he, he enjoys it. The book is good. People are excited about the book. You know, he's almost like he has this moment. There's this moment where he could almost become like this local legend a little bit, right? Yeah. Home from the war, Columbia grad, boy, good boy, come home. All these things that's sort of starting to happen. Um, and then he, uh, he, Start, he's working on the book he's working on the book and then he hits this roadblock and it i thought it was quite interesting let me let me read a little bit of, from this nevels and hardy biography again um this is 1963 and for those who are historically minded you might know that something significant happened in 1963 <laughs> <laughs> the november 1963 assassination of president kennedy devastated ken 
He became depressed, so depressed that he quit work on the book and began to drink quite heavily. Friends like J.C. Brassard saw Ken during this time and noticed this deep melancholy, but did not realize the cause. Some years later, Ken recalled this extreme reaction to Kennedy's death in a letter to Robert Gottlieb. We're going to talk a lot more about Robert Gottlieb. It was not until February of 1964 that Ken recovered enough to go back to the manuscript, so three months or so. Um, he made no revisions, merely picked up where he had left off several months before. He typed what he, up what he had, tacked an ending on it, and mailed the manuscript to Simon & Schuster in New York. It was the first time that he had subjected his work to public scrutiny since the Neon Bible. He chose that company for a specific reason, which he later detailed in a letter to his editor. The novel came unrecommended, quote, over the transom and fell into the firm's slush pile. In those days, Simon & Schuster was a small family-owned publishing house. The relationship between editors and the staff was warm and casual. Secretaries and assistants did the first readings of a manuscript. If the initial reader liked a book, he or she would then recommend it to a, uh, uh, an editor. Um, so <clears throat> the fact, I mean, he sends it to Simon & Schuster, which is a huge publisher now. Um, yeah. But at the time had had a few kind of breakout hits. I think they had published Catch-22 and a couple of other books that like went on to quite a bit of renown. But it wasn't the Simon & Schuster that we know. It, I read that he, because I'm poking around in the background here, I read that he had a correspondence with, with Heller. Uh, he may have. Yes. Okay. Yes. I okay. don't have any of those letters handy, but I think he probably did. Because Heller was mm. in the Simon & Schuster stable and Robert Gottlieb, who is, Robert Gottlieb is like... Um, I think there was, you know how there's that Paris review or sorry, the New Yorker um, interview series where they interview like the art of fiction, the art of poetry, whatever. Yeah. yeah. There's one, the art of editing and it's Robert Gottlieb. Ah. So he's like a big, he's a, he's a, he's a heavy in the world yeah. of editing, right? He brought Simon and Schuster from being this boutique little thing to what it became. He's still alive. 91. I, I, I take it back. I misread what I had looked at. Um, Gottlieb is responsible for Heller finishing catch 22. He yeah. encouraged Heller to finish catch 22. That so makes, that Gottlieb makes sense. and, and well, you're going to get into it, yeah. but yeah. So mm -hmm. you big, big, big time editor. Yeah. 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 Cool. Um, yeah, I want to talk about a couple of other things, too, that are going on, because mostly from now, from here out to the end, we're going to be talking about Confederacy of Dunces, pub the publication, the legacy and, and uh, the tale of publication. And then John, John Kennedy Toole's sort of final moments, <laughs> final years. Um, the last turn of the valve. Right. Oh, Fortuna. <laughs> yeah, oh, right. Fortuna. Yeah, there's a the couple. Wheel. There's yeah. a couple little anecdotes because I remember I'm I'm always I'm very interested in this notion of John John Kennedy Tool in his John Kennedy Tool land bumping up against the real world. Um, he has a friend in the mid '60s burn out on acid, which mm. I thought was interesting because you don't think of that in John Kennedy Tool world. One of the friends in this band that he bounced around with, um, the, the one the guy I think I mentioned earlier, uh, Sidney Snow, who uh, said that, oh, we didn't even know that John had a, went to Columbia. We just thought he was gone for a while. Um, there's apparently this Sidney Snow uh, missed was was supposed to sit in with another band and he missed rehearsal. And it turned out during rehearsal that band all shot up heroin, but it was a bad batch and the whole band OD'd. Oh, wow. so his friend like had narrowly missed this this thing. So Tool is Tool is uh, he's coming into the 60s. The 60s are sort of encroaching on on his world. We saw that when he was at Columbia, when his 
it's like proto SJW stuff that doesn't really quite make sense to him. And then the drug world is kind of it's 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 at the door, but it's it's there. All these things are all these things are there and around him. Meanwhile, you know, he's writing. He's and so it starts to make sense how he can have a novel that's prescient. I think he was more participating in the world than maybe. Yeah. At least in my mind, he was such an outsider that he was sort of, you know, he was a, a hermit down in New Orleans who was cranking out this book. Um, the uh, I, so we'll get into the 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 publication thing. So I think the myth is John Kennedy Tool sends this book to publishers. Nobody wants it. He uh, depressed at the rejection. He kills himself. Uh, that's overly simplistic. Um, he sends it to Simon and Schuster and Simon and Schuster only. And he gets a letter back from Robert Gottlieb. And I'm going to read you this letter. And I just think about the fact, you know, uh, Dan, you're you're an, you're a novelist and your no, your book is coming out. It's going to be published by Terror House, right? Yeah, by yeah, Terror House. Very exciting. Now. You can imagine whoever the big biggest shot editor in the world is. I don't know even know who that is. I don't even pay attention to these things anymore. Yeah, but. no, me neither. <laughs> but uh, you imagine you got this letter from them. Uh, yeah. You know, a couple of weeks after sending it out, um, it would be. Let me see. Sorry, gotta find my page. Um, let's see. Um. Okay, so he he's basically. I wish I could find this. Sorry. Oh, um, ah, why don't I have this section? Okay, so anyway, it starts out. <laughs> I set this up, and now I don't have it. Um, here's a little section. This isn't from a letter. Uh, no, no, hold on. I want to read. That. Well, well, Brad is getting on to this. Uh, I know. You know I've lost yeah, my no, let's, let's just remind people. Uh, you know, go and go and support the New Right podcast. Our friend Absolutely. Dan, uh, for sure. Uh, it's, Baltic underscore Dan, yep, on Twitter for sure. That's right. Uh, on the Bird website. And then please do, legitimately, we're trying to get our Patreon numbers up. We're trying to do cool things. We've got a Telegram channel. Go to artofdarkpod.com. All the links are there. If you're not, uh, if you can't scrounge up three bucks a month, one, I don't know what you're doing listening to three-hour podcasts about uh, about uh, writers of, of comic novels who suicided themselves. But <laughs> if, you're, if, you're not, uh, if you're not feeling it, uh, at, at the very least, get, seriously, go uh, give us five stars on uh, iTunes, uh, Spotify. You can do the same. Leave us a nice little review uh, on on uh you know apple Podcasts, whatever it is that stuff adds up and we really genuinely appreciate it we love hearing from people i know brad just loves hearing from people on twitter uh, <laughs> i do i do he actually he actually does and he's running that twitter account in a really fun way it's not just the each you know we don't just use it to spam you with each episode no hopefully it's not spam you know he's he's finding a different artist and he's he's posting like adjacent things and it's it's a it's a whole little uh little world you can it get is. into with with art of darkness and and i still think we haven't done this quite yet for two years season three kicks off uh next year uh and and uh you're still an early adopter if mm -hmm. you if you get in now particularly if you get in on patreon so seriously consider it and uh support your your uh, your effort pod <laughs> I uh, yeah. I say this as someone with a literary podcast, New Right, New Right Podcast. Mm -hmm. Your podcast is such uh, you know, such an effort pod. You guys like put a lot of work into this and 
how awesome is it to be able to listen to episodes and come away knowing more or everything about a particular artist? So yeah, yeah you, whoever is listening, you should be paying for this because <laughs> I have seen how much work goes into these episodes. It's uh, roughly, I think I told Brad like five X the work I do for yeah. my pod episodes. <laughs> so uh, yeah, support this because oh. It, um, you know, this is better than anything that you're going to watch on Netflix or yeah. listen to on NPR. So, oh, right. Well, and thank, and you, Netflix, thank, thank you. you. Really appreciate that, Dan. And uh, we're not on the right kind of sedatives to sound like N- <laughs> NPR. Uh, and, and Netflix is never going to reach out and, and touch faith for you. You're never mm-hmm. going to be able to reach Netflix on the phone. You can have a paraphilic relationship with us. You can find us on the Bird, Bird website <laughs> and we'll be your friends. You can get in the chat. We're real people. Brad's in, in in Michigan. I'm in Minnesota. Dan's in New York City. We bring on guests from all over the world. Mm-hmm. And we're just getting started, too. I feel like we're we're journeymen Art of Darkness podcasters now, but we're we're still in it. And if you go back and listen to the back catalog, one, every every episode is evergreen because the artists are all dead. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, rest in peace and all of that. So and and you can see the evolution of the show to the to the format and to the 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 sort of style and the quality that we've arrived at here. And so yeah, we hope you enjoy the back catalog and we hope to be here for another four or five. As long as we, you know, as as various diseases and plagues and and uh, relationships and everything else, through it all, Brad and I are our podcast husbands, and we're going to be here for you. <laughs> Don't worry. <laughs> all right, the, I'm done. I'm done. Yeah, yeah. The guest to, uh, or yeah, the friend of the pod to uh, guest pipeline is real. I mean, yeah. I had you guys mm-hmm. on New Right, but uh, you know, lo and behold, eventually, I'm a guest on Art of Darkness. Yeah. So who knows if you subscribe and become friends with Kevin and Brad, you might be where <laughs> I am. On. That's right. <laughs> it's entirely possible. This is the new faculty party circuit. Yeah, I think that's that's what it is. We're already <laughs> doing it. So <laughs> yeah, right. that's right. Very strange. Yeah. 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 Oh, did you did did I, I vamp enough for you to, yeah, to find no, your, your page? Great. Brad? No, I okay, got a, I got a, I, right. I, I missed a little bit of I missed a little bit of setup that I wanted to do. Okay. All right. All right. Bring so, it back. As you can see, I'm doing DJT hands because I'm trying rewind to rewind the tape. Rewind the tape. Okay. So, um, he sends it to this. He sends it to Simon and Schuster. A secretary or assistant reads it. She loves it. She says is in a letter to him where she's trying to set up a, a, a meeting or a phone call at least with with Gottlieb. She says, "Is now the time for me to tell you that I laughed, chortled, and collapsed my way through Confederacy? I did." So this assistant loved it. Then she gets it to Gottlieb. Gottlieb um, also quite enjoyed it, but he saw some flaws in it. And this was the beginning of. You know, and fair enough. This is the beginning of a two to three year relationship of correspondence between Gottlieb and Tool, right? So it's not, you know, flat no. This is what Gottlieb says in his first letter back to Tool. Um, uh, Anyway, in case I don't speak to you before I go, he's off to Europe for a while. I wanted to say one thing more about your book, having read your letter, and this is it. It seems to me that you understand the problem, the major problem involved, but think that the conclusion can solve it. More is required, though. Not only do the various threads need resolving, they can always be tied together conveniently. Um, 
what must happen is that they must be strong and meaningful all the way through, not merely episodic and then wittily pulled together to make everything look as if it's come out right. In other words, there must be a point in everything you have in the book, a real point, not just amusingness that's forced to figure itself out. Does that make sense? I hope so, because it's vital. Please, no matter what, let me see the book again when, you're, when you've worked on it again. I understand completely why you had to stop and put it aside, get it finished at all costs. This happens even to editors. Uh, books are sent to press that demand at least another go through because one simply can't look at them for another moment. A period away from the job usually does help, though. I hope to see you at some later date if we can't make it in June. Okay, now this is where it gets a little tricky. That's um, a hell of a rejection letter. It's it's not even that's, really a rejection. Yeah, it's more letter. than it's, that. Yeah, yeah it's, it's like they're like, already working together. Yes. Yes. Wow. Exactly. And I think as we'll see, it's tricky. Gottlieb has been criticized by some people for sort of leading Tool along, leading and, him on. Yeah, exactly. And and the thing is, it's like Tool isn't part of the publishing world. He's never tried to submit anything really. Neon Bible when he was a kid, which was roundly rejected. He he's he hasn't participated. He's blindly sent a book, and suddenly he's got the ear of who will be the hottest shot editor of his generation, right? Yeah. And and this guy is saying it's good, but. It's good, but unfortunately, the but is pretty deep into the DNA of the book, right? Yeah. You know, it's like, it's great, except it doesn't mean anything. So if you could work on that, it's like, well, it's, it's great, <laughs> except all these random comical vignettes. Right. Yeah. Which is like what the book is. And so, yeah, this <laughs> have would... you tried making your picaresque comic novel more dramatic, right? And <laughs> satisfying in a dramatic way. Like, what? You want a different, yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I, I think this adds some pressure to Tool, whereas like maybe what he should have done is just gone to another editor. Yeah. Know? Just been like, okay, well, it's not for you. And if, you know, if he'd been familiar with the publishing world, maybe he would have had the, you know, maybe he would have had the wherewithal to, to have done that and things would have gone a little differently. Um, I, it, I don't know. I don't know that anybody except maybe Gottlieb would know how different that first draft that was sent over was compared to what ended up being published um some differences were made i don't actually think based on these correspondences that they were that substantial to be honest i think yeah um i think we're looking the first version that sent is something approximating what ends up getting published um but anyway it goes it goes back and forth now john kennedy tool tells his people around him that he's got a lead with this editor his mother blows this up immediately into this big thing my son, the genius writer, who's got this big publisher in New York. It's just a matter of time now before he's a darling of the literary world and we're rich and all of these things. And you can, so you've got that pressure. You've got that pressure he's had from his mother since day one. And now it's, it's focused on this book that has been sort of rejected, actually, by this publisher or... Mm. Um, at least the feedback is such that it's almost impossible to respond to. Now, the, the letters continue on. They write back and forth to each other for a couple of years. Um, in December of 1964, this is about seven months after you submitted the first round. Um, we've got another letter that's got a little bit of interesting uh, from Gottlieb. This is so after Gottlieb has read the second round of submissions. <clears throat> I've taken a long time to get back to you, but not for want of thinking. And I still don't know what to tell you after thinking and after consult consultation with one person in town whose opinion I needed. 
In many ways, I think you've done an excellent job of pulling the plot together and of making sense of certain nonsense things, of strengthening certain characters, of eliminating certain others. The book is much better. It is still not right. Let me interrupt that to say that the other opinion I wanted was that of Candida uh, Donadio, a young woman who's probably the best literary, literary agent in town, one of my closest friends. She handles Joe Heller, Bruce Friedman, John Cheever, Nelson Algren, Thomas Pynchon, Harvey Suedos, Philip Roth, ad infinitum. I wanted to know what she thought for various reasons, because she is the agent for you, because what you're good at would delight her, because her judgment is accurate. Because frankly, if she and I can't figure out what to do with you, it's not likely that anyone else will be able to. Anyway, having introduced her, we talked for an hour on the phone Sunday night, and as often happens, had exactly the same reaction. Liked the same parts, didn't like the same parts, had the same doubts, and the same excitements. Now, a little bit later in this, he says, um, let's see, certainly an editor can't say, quote, put meaning in. Uh, but which, which is all very well, but what to do? The book could be improved and published, but it wouldn't succeed. We could never say that it was anything. On the other hand, we can't abandon it or you. I, we won't. We won't abandon you. But we know, from, we know from experience that when Candida and I know something is basically for us, but not right, it is very difficult to have it right for other people to, in town. Uh, it is very difficult to have it right for other people in town on our wavelength, and the others are out of the question. So I don't know what to tell you. What I really would like to be, uh, what I really would like would be to talk, but you are there, not here, and I'm not likely to be there soon. Is there a chance of your coming north? If not, and if you are not disgusted with me, perhaps Candida and I will figure out a next step, or perhaps you will. In any case, write to me without nervousness because I am here for you whatever way things work out. Let me know what you think. My own guess is that you will feel you can't do more on this book without specific editorial suggestion. I wouldn't blame you. If so, I'll try harder to think of something. Or if you give us up, tell me and I'll send back the manuscript. But I don't want to and it wouldn't be a good idea. Or just brood for a while. Don't despair. Best, Robert Gottlieb. So it's in the hands of you know, this woman who was the agent of all these people, Pynchon and Roth, some of these people who weren't even quite those people as we think of them now, but right, heavies. Yeah. And the message is, we're not going to give up on you, but I don't really know what to tell you what to do. Yeah. And- a sort of purgatory, which is almost more frustrating than if they had said, um, you know, take a hike. Yeah. I, hearing that letter read, I just go, bro, just cut to the chase here. Are yeah. we going to publish this thing or not? Are right. we writing each other love letters? Like, right. what is this? I don't like, know what to do. And we liked some parts of it. Yeah. We didn't like They're not on our wavelength. And can you come right. north? And like, right. oh, God, right. just publish it or don't. Yeah. Ugh. Well, that's, yeah. yeah. Gatekeeping. It, and and I, I'm sure he's a brilliant man. But I mean, there is mm-hmm. this style of just like, oh, ugh. Yeah. 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 No, I, I'm with you. I, I, I sat here reading this thinking about, you know, if I sent a book out, if I sent my book out to some heavy and this is what I got back, what would I think? What would how, what would my reaction to this be? And I you think would be over the moon for the attention, I think. Yes. And I think these guys know that. And mm-hmm. so there is that weird kind of stringing along. The power differential is yeah. so it unfair. Is huge. Huge. Yeah. yeah. Because yeah, he's yeah. not going to uh, say, oh, screw it. I'll just, you know, uh, self-publish this. Right. You couldn't do that in those days. Right. But I mean, he could have just walked it to someone else. But this yeah. guy was the hottest ticket in town. Right. So, you know, there's like a real incentive to, um, you know, stay with him. Right. Even though he's giving, uh, you know, um, 
giving them this kind of like e-girl treatment. <laughs> right, right, right. And yeah, it's hard to know. It's like, well, you know, not seeing the versions that Gottlieb's looking at, maybe Gottlieb had a point, right? Like, I don't really know. I mean, I just know the final versions is great novel. And maybe, maybe tool in the end was able to put some, get some stuff into there that, that that's the sort of the, the finishing bit that really makes it work somehow. But like you read this and you think as a writer, like, well, okay. I could just say, screw you. I'm going across town, but maybe he's actually right. And I should listen to him. Yeah. You know, it's like, how do you figure out like which of those is the way to go? Like maybe if I go across town, I'm like short selling myself because I could work on it for another six months. And really, you know, it, it just puts you into this crazy kind of situation. Um, whereas Gottlieb probably should have said, you know, sorry, not for us. Now we know certainly now that if there's a sentence that's not liked by an agent or a publisher, that's it. They don't, yeah, they don't yeah. you're done. <laughs> like, <laughs> I mean, I, I know this from experience having worked with like a lot of agents and publishers. It's just like they don't have time to actually no one's going to write you anything. This Oh, long. absolutely. Yeah. The yeah. young, handsome, potent, virile podcaster yeah. wandered into the offices <laughs> no, of in, Simon and Schuster, yeah. fully loaded with an AR-15. Do I have your attention? Yeah. Dude, in 2020, if they were going to publish you they wouldn't let write you a letter this long no absolutely even if you got a deal it would be like oh this is great but you know like it's 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 kind of crazy just the the degree of correspondence that's happening here and his interactions with the scottlieb guy well it Um, it goes to like they actually do want to publish a polished or you know for for whatever it is he wants to make this a great novel, this Gottlieb yeah. guy. Mm-hmm. And like that, you don't see that in the industry today. They, they want to get, you know, I, I think we all know what the issues are and they right. want a novel that checks the boxes and it's well, good to go. We got, you know, right. the picture matches, this matches, that matches, you're yeah. stamped. And yeah. like, you know, for, for all the, you know, like dithering here, it does seem what what seems to be going on, and I've had uh, people have uh, said the same about Nutcranker to me. Uh, not in a way that was really, uh, you know, too uh, harsh, but they, there is a sense among I think among many readers that a comic novel is not a serious novel. That like if you want a a novel that you know is important that stands the test of time, it has to be more than Worthy. a comedy. Yeah, yeah some yeah. something like that. And uh, I I don't think that's true. Right. I think that you know Dunce's uh, was a masterpiece. And I'm not going to, I can't, you know, uh, say that about my own writing because I'm (laughs) a biased party, but uh, yeah. It's a a very similar dynamic in the, in the theater where nobody goes into these grad programs or even these writing, these young writing programs, writing comedies, really. It just doesn't, it's just not done because it doesn't get you awards. It doesn't get you the fellowships. And it's a pity because we live in clown world and we desperately need Art that reflects how absurd and hilarious the situation is yeah. desperately. Oh, yeah. With yeah. new voices, you know? Yeah. Yeah. yeah for yeah. sure. Mm-hmm. For sure. Yeah. yeah well, yeah. Real so, new voices. Right. 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 So Tool is in this. I mean, Tool's in this. I guess his life is sort of prescient in a way. Right. Even. Um, yeah. Absolutely. And. and Here's the thing that he writes. This is his next letter after that letter. Um, and this is months go by. So the last letter was uh, 
let's see, December, uh, December 1964. Um, a month later, he writes Gottlieb, uh, Tool writes Gottlieb, the only sensible thing to do, and this is after much like dis- like despair and banging his head against the wall, not sure what he's going to do, and mom saying, oh, did you get the book deal yet? And blah, 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 blah. The only sensible thing to do, it seems to me, is to ask for the manuscript back. Aside from making some deletions, I don't think I could really do much to the book now. And of course, even with revisions, you might not be satisfied. I can't even think of much that I could do to the book. So there's a little point in you being burdened with a manuscript. Will you send it to me? I must say very honestly that I've been fortunate in having the manuscript receive your notice. I hope that you'll be willing to look at anything I might send in the future. All right. So there's a sense of which he gave up. Now, uh, Gottlieb writes back to him. Gottlieb doesn't really want him to give up, but he doesn't really give him a very good. He's like, on the one hand, he doesn't want him to give up, but he's also not really telling him like what we're going to do. Um, uh, at one point, Tool goes up and tries to meet him in New York, like surprise visit him in New York. But Gottlieb's out of town because he's, you know, he's off in Europe or something. And he's not, he, he's not able to meet Gottlieb. And he he thinks uh, Tool thinks, and this is, I think, a very kind of poignant metaphor for what's going on here. Tool thinks that he's made this like very cringing, embarrassing impression that he like ranted to them, um, to the to to the woman there. And when Gottlieb comes back, there's like a note that's been left by Tool for Gottlieb. Nobody remembers Tool even being there, and oh, so he's really in his head. Yeah. exactly and so he writes this letter of like oh i'm so sorry i know i embarrassed myself and i hope that you know i hope i didn't ruin this relationship that you and i have yada 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 and it's it's you know it's kind of sad here's a letter from gottlieb (laughs) about that (laughs) miss him just want him back right right (laughs) um here's a letter uh here's a letter from gottlieb and this is there's another letter where 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 tool is kind of spilling his heart about like i don't know what to do i love these characters i love this book i you know i don't know what to do um gottlieb writes back to him i can't say much sensible to you about your mortifications over your performance on the telephone with me so tool must have said something on the phone that he felt later was embarrassed he was embarrassed about or here in the office six years of analysis haven't robbed me of my own brand of insecurities or neurosis and why should i try to rob you of yours but remember that that if you it, remember that if to you we are threatening figures in a complicated and confusing world, to us you are an attractive and important mystery. You don't have to put yourself on the line in person since you have done your job on paper. We are the ones who have to appear and behave strongly and well. Besides, silence never seems frantic. It didn't occur to me that you were anything but cautious and relatively easy and pleasant about accepting criticism from a total stranger. So Tula had put on a good show of like saving face inside turmoil and, you know, confusion and desperation later in the same letter from Gottlieb in March of 65 about the book. Everything you write about makes sense to me, including your doubts and your ultimate determinations. Since we agree on what is real and what isn't, there's not much point to recounting the areas I approve and disapprove of. You know, and you know them before I mentioned them. As you explain yourself, I see that it is essential that you work on into the book, and I'm glad you are. My words, quote, it wouldn't succeed, quote, end quote, I can't tell you now what I meant by them. So he told him that it wouldn't succeed. And that meant something as a book publisher different than it did to a writer later on in the same letter. And, and then I'm, I'm going to not read so many. I'm going to read one more letter from Tool, and that's not going to be so much of a letter. It, it's just the whole story of it plays out in these letters. <clears throat> from Gottlieb uh, to Tool in the same letter. 
I don't know just what I've said here, and I don't know that I want to turn back to see. What I want basically to have said is this. You have nothing to apologize. You are a good writer and a serious person and are doing your job seriously and modestly. And of course, it isn't easy. And as for the actual rewrite, I tell you, as I have already told you, I will never abandon you. A writer's decisions are his own, not his editor's. If you know you have to continue with Ignatius, that is, of course, what you should do. I will read, reread, edit, perhaps publish, generally cope until you are fed up with me. What more can I say? Please write me short or long at any time, if only to say that you're working or not. Or if you like, show me bits of what you've done or don't, whichever would be more useful. Cheer up. Work. We are overcoming. Okay. Now, this wasn't particularly helpful. A couple days later, um, Tool writes a very long letter uh, about all of the things he starts spilling his beans about the neon Bible and the John F. Kennedy assassination and the effect it had on him and all these things, like all this sort of stuff in his head about writing this book. It becomes not about the book anymore. It becomes about John Kennedy tool. Right. Yeah. Um, uh, Cause he's not, he he's, he's lost, I think any ability to change much about the book at this point. And so he's sort of like trying to rationalize, but he has one person, weirdly enough, the only person he can talk to about writing in the writing process is now this Gottlieb guy. Um, you know, he's not surrounded by other writers. He doesn't have friends like that. Um, yeah. um, and he's in this purgatory, as you said. So it's a very, it's kind of a tricky situation. Uh, it's definitely a tricky situation. Um, here is, I think, this last letter from Gottlieb, the last paragraph that Gottlieb wrote to Tool. I didn't think your purpose in writing me was vague. This was another letter where Tool like spilled beans about a bunch of things, about the purpose of the book and, 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 and all these other things. Um, I didn't think your purpose in writing me was vague. Everyone wants to feel outside professional interest in what we, he's doing. Writing, quote, writing, we live on it. But you are not working in a void, not as far as New York Publishing is concerned. At least this editor is interested and hoping that you've made the right choice in continuing with this book rather than starting something new. But that decision has been made. Now to see what you do with it. Tool had decided, all right, I'm going to make this thing what Gottlieb wants. And then, frankly, he just doesn't. Uh, yeah. He doesn't really work on it much anymore after that. Um, he was he was done. It sounds like he was he was done. He was happy with the book. Pretty much. He wanted yeah. Gottlieb to publish it is the thing, you know, and right. he saw it as his last chance. He didn't at the time. He didn't really he didn't really have a notion for another book yet, though. It turns out that he was starting to work on another book, um, you know, so nothing happens with the book. It goes on a shelf, right? Yeah, um, because he wrote a full and complete book. And he had no idea how to, you know, it, it was essentially like Gottlieb was telling him, you needed to write a different book. Yeah. And, and I think it sounds like one of the issues is he didn't have a community of other writers and, you know, a, and other, you know, publishers and, you know, people to talk to. So yeah. he probably placed a lot of uh, stock and credence in Gottlieb's opinions. And he, you know, probably thought, well, what I think is a good book what I, my values, my taste is compromised because this guy who knows everything about taste says right. it's not good enough. Right. And uh, that probably, I, I, you know, I think would have been a crushing blow to him because mm -hmm. it compromises the very thing that he needs to write, which is his sense of taste, his sense of what is good and what is bad. 
Right, 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 right. No, very well put. Very well put. Um, so the years after this, uh, January 1966, thereabouts, he keeps working at Dominican. He's still teaching at Dominican. Um, uh, but, you know, he doesn't really know. He, he's not he's he's still living with his mom, who's who's kind of pestering him all the time and still wants him to be this great writer. There's a sort of a final blow in late of ni- 1966 where Thelma cajoles Tool into taking his book, Confederacy of Dunces. This is the last gasp taking it to this publisher, Hodding Carter Jr., who's coming to Tulane as a writer in residence. Um, JTK takes it. JKT. I kept writing JTK and I just now realized that that's not right. That's funny. I probably wrote it a dozen times in these notes Um, uh, to take this manuscript to him. And Hodding Carter basically is like, "Ah, I don't know. Like I, maybe I could do something with it, but makes no commitment whatsoever. And tool takes this as like more of a rejection than even Gottlieb because there's no positivity to it. And this is actually starts. um, There has been obviously a split, growing between Thelma and Tool all this time, but they'd always been kind of friendly. They would hang out and they would talk and they would drink as difficult mm-hmm. as she was to deal with. But after this, this rejection by Hodding Carter, Tool's like, that's it. I'm not, I'm not dealing with mom anymore. Like I'm not uh. gonna talk to her. I'm not she's not my friend. Um, we're not gonna have conversations. This is like the this is where they really kind of break break up in a interesting. In a way. Um yeah. Interesting and, that it would be over that. It, it yeah, seemed, it was, I mean, I'm sure there were other issues. Yeah, it, it was all adding up to that. It was sort of like the straw that broke the camel's back. It was like he had accepted his rejection and then she pushed him into it again and he faced it again. And I think it was just too I think it was just too much. OK, um, as we get into and here's here's what starts happening now. 67, 68. Um, we're coming to the end. 67, 68. Tool starts getting more and more paranoid mm. he starts being like his father was yeah. uh, becoming less and less rational. The neat compartments he had built into his life start to kind of fall apart a little bit. I'm going to give you one example here real quick. Um, again, from the Neville's and Harding by bio- uh, Neville's and Hardy biography. Sorry. I got the page here. Um <clears throat> This is uh, he's driving with his friend, Dave Kubach. One afternoon while driving around the city, this is like 68. Uh, one afternoon while driving around the city, Ken checked his rearview mirror and said he was sure they were being followed by a car. He said the women, woman driving in her passenger must be students from Dominican. Kubach recalled that quick quote, quickly, we took evasive action. John drove down a couple of alleys and made a couple of swift turns and proudly mentioned that he had eluded him. Mm. Kubach thought Ken's reaction to the supposed pursuit was odd. He said that he had been had he been single, Kubak would have been flattered to have young women chasing after. But Ken's view is that they were to be gotten rid of. Um, and then one more. Um, let's see. Uh, the only uh, change. This is a student that had taken him many, many times. Um, she noticed a change in him. The only change she noticed in him was that his humor had become more pointed and political. The radical sixties mm. had only served to strengthen Ken's intolerance for institutional hypocrisy. But though the times were liberal, the climate of the deep South was not Stovall said Ken's mockery of religion and the foibles of Louisiana politicians upset some of the young women in the class who did not see the humor in making fun of how fast, uh, nuns could say the rosary. Although his classes remained full of devoted followers, Ken's acid wit was playing the wrong crowd. Um, mm. 
later he would see a doctor to try and get he would get some medicated for like some his nerves they didn't know what to do with these things back then but he yeah. would, he would get very paranoid and he like his father excuse me would start looking for listening devices he would start thinking that cars passing in the street outside their house at night were stalking them interesting yeah it got very, just got very very paranoid and it just and it wasn't rational um yeah. and he do, explained hmm. go ahead Go ahead. Well, Kevin. I mean, do you, did he have, was he ever diagnosed with anything? Did he have like late onset, like schizophrenia? Or no, not specifically. No? I mean, we'd have hmm. to, we'd only be speculating. He had a doctor that prescribed him some uh, butasol sodium, which is a, it's a butabarbital. I don't even know what it is. It's a, it's a, it's some kind of, it was like the only thing that they would prescribe at the time for quote nerves. Yeah. Right? You know, it's, hmm. and if you got some kind of paranoid delusions, it's not really nerves. You know, it's not no. anxiety and I didn't really have an understanding of the distinctions between these things. Um, I mean, there is a strong, as I'm sure you both know, hereditary component to schizophrenia. Oh, yeah. And um, yeah. And sometimes, though, it, it mostly, I think, surfaces in late adolescence. It, it can mm -hmm. surface later in life. Yeah. Yeah. And, and who knows how long? I mean, it, it, there's just like anything, there's got to be varying degrees of it, too. You know, I mean. Um, you know, maybe he was really wrestling with this stuff earlier and he just, you know, managed to keep it under wraps, you know, well, managed to compartmentalize his life. Right. I'm crazy. Prodigious I'm... drinking does not help. So right, if he's right. continuing to do that, that right. can certainly, uh, you know, yeah. it can make you, uh, hear things. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Let me read. I'm going to read a couple, one more thing. This is from, um, actually Bob Byrne, the guy who inspired Ignatius Riley. Um, page 161 okay um <clears throat> this is um in 1995 there was an interview with this bob Byrne guy who obviously is much older now and he's talking about tool well careening going... into the sorry brad careening yeah. into the fourth hour here oh yeah in, in our effort <laughs> yeah. uh, very very well yeah. done brad okay okay yeah. set us up again we're, so who is this talking oh yeah. uh, this is bob Byrne. this is the guy who inspired ignatius riley and this is Got in it. a 1995 interview. He's talking okay. about Tool. Well, he was going into paranoia. He was living in that house with his father and that overbearing mother. This was on Hampton Street between Tulane and Broadway. Ken's problem was that he was extremely parsimonious. Money hagged him, and he worried. And he worried. What he really wanted to do was to make enough money to go to New York again. I think he thought New York was the center of the world. He was going to go there and take care of his parents um, so he could get rid of that obligation. He came here, and we talked. My little brother was with us on the was with us, um, blah, blah, blah. He'd gone tool had gone into therapy, but evidently it didn't work. I remember the windows were open. <laughs> it was hot. He walked over. He said that people were passing his house and honking, that people were plotting against him. It was pure paranoia. I talked to him and by the end, he seemed pretty stable. He said, yeah, maybe it was all his imagination. That was in August. And then I didn't see him at Christmas. I wasn't in that long, but my brother said, Ken's going mad. I said, yeah, he's in a bad way. That was my little brother's comment. He was well into paranoia, and part of it was the book. It was a tremendous frustration. He was defeated. He was frustrated. He was completely disoriented. He was just, because this, the book was his, I think he pinned a lot of his hopes on it. Of course, they had encouraged him to begin with. Then he got an editor, and the editor objected to the picture of the New York Jewish girl or something. They said it was anti-Semitic or something. But she's a typical hunter girl. Other things like that, you know, and Burma Jones and the guy at Schuster were giving it a bad time. It was the 60s, you know, and the book isn't politically correct. He was thoroughly frustrated <laughs> and utterly defeated. Now, this is one time there's two people 
Gottlieb never says anything about this in any of the letters, right? If, yeah. if his if he loved the book, but was like, hey, it's a little anti-Semitic, I think he would have said either no, or he would have said, hey, can you just make it less anti-Semitic and then we'll publish it? Like yeah. you're, telling me, you're telling me Gottlieb isn't a Catholic? <laughs> Right. So you're telling me <laughs> the New York well, publisher yeah. with lots of opinions. Okay. Right. Would yeah. he have carried on a two to three year correspondence if he thought the book was like fundamentally anti-Semitic? Sure. I, yeah, no, I doubt right. it, right? Yeah. Um, but but um Thelma would rant about how this Jewish publisher in New York City was trying to hold him back because he was a Catholic, right? She yeah. like wound it up into conspiracy theories and probably got Ken wound up into it too. Um, and so there were like some of the stories got very paranoid about like um, they they ended up rejecting it because there was another there was another uh, writer in Louisiana that they were going to give the book to and publish it under his name. Like all these like paranoid delusions started building up. Um, yeah. And, you know, because he's losing his mind, frankly, he's whatever we want to say. He's he's losing his grip on reality. Um, now, eventually there is a. He has a fight with his mother. There's some dispute about what this fight actually was about. But whatever the case, in January of um, he he hadn't been showing up. I think what it was was he hadn't been he stopped showing up to work at Dominican and then they replaced him. And so he basically was unemployed and his mother gave him uh, a hard time about this. He was basically providing for the family at this point. And in January of 1969, January 19th, 1969, uh, Tool walks out of the house withdraws $1,500 from his bank account. And uh, other than one run-in he has with a friend, he's not seen again for two months. He goes on this road trip. He purportedly and makes it to California. The very little is known about where exactly he went and when. Um, Thelma claimed that he they had a ticket in his jacket that he'd gone to the Flannery O'Connor house, which apparently you couldn't even do. Like she made up some legend about him. It's very strange. Yeah. But anyway, two months after he left, approximately, there's a report of a suspicious vehicle um, by the side of the road in Biloxi, Mississippi. I'm going to read this bit and then we'll talk briefly about the publication, how they got it published. And then I think we're, we'll, we'll, we're kind of we're kind of good. Um, <clears throat> 169. Um <clears throat> This is uh, finding the car. It was a warm, clear spring afternoon, and the temperature had climbed into the mid-80s. The white Chevelle was backed onto the side of a gravel road surrounded by pine woods. What caught Diaz's eye was the bright green garden hose running from the exhaust pipe to the rear driver's side window. As soon as he spotted that, Diaz knew he was dealing with a serious situation. Diaz is the police officer that was dispatched to the scene. He parked in front of the Chevelle and walked toward it with the glare of the sun in his eyes. Even before he could see into the car, Diaz smelled death behind its doors. Um, Ken's body was sitting behind the wheel. His head was tilted back, resting on the seat. He was neatly attired in a white shirt, dress pants, and a tie. Um, he had a stack of papers next to him. It's not clear what all was in there. There was parts of a book that he might have been he was working on called the conqueror worm very little is known about that book um 
those papers were all lost in a hurricane a couple of like six months later, which weirdly enough happened to his schoolboy records too. were lost in a hurricane. Something about uh, living in the, this part the of the South. most New Orleans thing ever. This <laughs> yeah. Just peak. Right, yeah. right, right, right. Um, and that, that was it. I mean, he had a funeral, three people, his mother, uh, his mother, his father, and a, like the na- a nanny he had grown that had been around for part of his childhood. That was it. Um, it's a suicide. It's a Catholic family. So, you know, a yeah. lot of the extended family thought that they had brought shame on him. And, and he's not the John Kennedy tool that we know, you know, as the writer of this great book. He's just the guy. Yeah. You know, he's a dude who, you know, had some success, but ultimately couldn't handle it, whatever. Um, one thing that's kind of screwed up, there was a suicide note. Thelma destroyed it. Yeah, I remember hearing that and thinking it was uh, quite unusual. Yeah. Wow, what a crime. So can you imagine? I mean, it was probably about her. Yeah, at least I would part, have to think so. Right? Mm-hmm. And maybe not entirely, but at least in part, it was about her. Now... Some years would go by, um, and eventually Thelma's fortunes take a worse and worse turn, right? John Tool's de- gone. Um, John Sr. dies. There's not really any money coming in. She ends up living with her brother, who seems like a very sweet guy, um, but she's so excuse me, she's so abrasive with him that they won't talk. They live in the same house, and they won't talk to each other. Um, because right. her brother, her brother hates him, <laughs> hates her. Uh, even though he's like this sweet Catholic guy who goes to church every single day, he's just like, I can't talk to her. Eventually, um, Thelma gets her hands on this book. She realizes it's a work of genius. This is the book that my genius son wrote, right? And she takes it to Walker Percy, who's a a, a famed Southern writer in his own right. Um, and Walker Percy sort of having this pressed on him by this kind of insane woman who's very <laughs> persuasive and very demanding, right? And doesn't know any boundaries, really. Decides in his gentlemanly way that he'll try to read a few pages. He figures, hey, if I can read a couple pages and say legitimately that this is not a good book, then I'm done with her, right? Yeah. Um, he reads it and he thinks it's incredible. Yeah. <laughs> right? So though, th- this is the other thing, too she had latched on to Walker Percy because he's a well-known writer and he happened to be in town just because somebody is a writer doesn't mean they have any means of getting anything published. Right. Yeah. That's a whole, Tell me about it. Right. right. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's a whole different, it's a whole different ball game. Right. So eventually they do manage to get it done. And it's a lot of craziness. Like they have to figure out, well, who does the money go to? Are there other extended family members who should get it? Who's going to publish it? You know, it was going to come out on Simon and Schuster, which is this kind of shishi boutique um, publisher. It ends up coming up on LSU press who had never published a novel before. Mm. Um, it published academic texts and that sort of thing. Uh, Thelma doggedly pursues this, right? Like is very persistent, gets people involved and starts to get, here's, here's what I think happened. Thelma sees a couple of things. She sees one, the ability to redeem herself in the memory of her son. She, I think, you know, to simplify it, in my opinion, what happened is there's a letter, a suicide note that blames her and she thinks if she can get this book published, she somehow redeems what that let what that note said to her, right? Yeah. And then there's for her 
her narcissistic tendencies, she gets to thrust herself in the spotlight. Her son is a genius. He's not around. So she's kind of a genius. Yeah. Um, and so she gets to sort of position herself that way. And as soon as the book hit, she was everywhere. She was at all of the book release parties. She was signing books. She was getting interviewed on local television. She was getting interviewed in the local newspaper. Like she put herself everywhere that she could, which I guess was good for book promotion, but it was clearly she was doing stuff for herself. There are stories about people coming to interview her and she's like, well, how about I play you a little song on the piano? And she would start like <laughs> playing him like old timey show tunes. And they're like, we're trying to talk about this. But like, what is this lady doing? Right. And anybody who wronged her was ever went on her list immediately. And she would expect people to uh, um, adhere to these old fashioned rules of decorum and etiquette. So like at one point she's at a party, some kind of book release party or something with Walker Percy and Walker Percy isn't paying attention to her. He's probably sick of her at this point. Mm. And she writes him a letter and says, I can't believe you were so rude to me and you didn't ask me how things were going. Here's a check for $1,000 for your services. Consider our relationship over. Right. <laughs> and she's just like, she's just this like insane person. But nonetheless, um, uh, and we got many anecdotes, but I know we're going long. She's an interesting figure in her own right. Um, I, that's kind of where it ends. I mean, the book in uh, what year was it? 1983 ends up winning the Pulitzer Prize. Was it 1983 mm. or 1981? Maybe 81. I think it was 81. You're right. Yeah. Um, Thelma died in 84. Um, and it, it's a hit. I mean, it's it sells out its first print run. It sells out print runs after that. And it's a, it's an absolute runaway hit after that. I mean, it's clearly, it's never been out of print. And its reputation has only grown since then. And, you know, I think we can attribute that to Thelma in a way because it would have just yeah. sat on a shelf. It would have been in maybe in Gottlieb's memoirs, it would have been mentioned or something, you know, yeah, but other yeah. than that would have totally disappeared. Um, and, you know, unfortunately, we didn't get another book out of it. You know, I only wish he would have, you know, gone to another publisher or. or, or well, that's the thing that strikes me. This yeah. is a, effectively his mother approached the second person who was ever approached about this book. Mm -hmm. Now, if, um, if, um, you know, Kennedy tool had, uh, you know, not had his hopes, had his spirit not been crushed by the, um, you know, essentially rejection by right. Gottlieb, he, um, you know, he had, he just shopped it around a little bit. Right. He would right. have, you know, why would he have not have found the same success that like, I mean, okay, this is like a real uh, selling point the, mm -hmm. the dead by his own hand artist, the grieving mother, this is like, and I'm sure in her mind, Thelma thought, you know, somewhat like, well, this actually is, a, you know, this is a, a good story right. behind a right. novel. Yeah. And that that is true. But the, it's a great novel. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure if um, Kennedy Tool had, you know, shopped it or had the the confidence to keep going, right, he right. would have, um, you know, it, it would have seen the light of day in his own life, and he, he perhaps would have, would not have taken his own life, right. Or, or this even, is a lot of projection, but yeah, of uh, course. Even if it hadn't, even if it hadn't been Confederacy, maybe he says, okay, well, I guess Confederacy didn't work, but man, these this publisher really thinks I've got something. Maybe I just need to write a different, a new, another book, you know, yeah, yeah. some, some, some other route. And then Confederacy comes back around anyway, you know, because he's now got some other book, but yeah, unfortunately we just never get to see. It's such a, 
it's such a disappointment that we don't get to see him fully come into into his full i mean confederacy of dunces is a monument is a monument uh, it's a huge book but to to think that he could have had a, you know, another 30 or 40 years career to to you know yeah to to write another you know half a dozen or a dozen books is is it's we missed out for sure yeah yeah I mean, this is something that Matt and I speculated about in our episode. Why was Kennedy Tool, um, you know, why was it so hard for him to get his work out there? Why was he an outsider? And yeah. of course, there's many reasons for that. But some of it is just kind of like, like, I know why I, you know, I'm very happy that Nutcranker is being published by uh, Terror House. Mm -hmm. But I know why I am not an insider. I know right. that my type of fiction will not be published by the mainstream industry. Yeah. That, that wasn't true in John Kennedy Tool's day. His fiction was eminently publishable by right. the, you know, the mainstream publishing industry. And, and he had something of a pedigree. I mean, you're talking about a guy working on his PhD at Columbia. Yeah. Yeah. You know, he's it's that's a that's a you know, that's. I'm sure there's a whole litany of novelists who've come out of Columbia PhD programs that have Wikipedia pages, you know? Yeah. 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 And, and he, um, you know, that, that is as great a mystery as anything else. Mm -hmm. Why he, um, you know, he started this correspondence with Gottlieb and he, um, you know, I guess uh, found himself in a sort of uh, circular pattern and some sort of, you know, yeah. odd uh, relationship that uh, eventually led to his um, giving up. And mm. he, he really, he really should not have. Don't give up. Don't give up, people. Don't w give up. GMI. Yeah, We're gonna make that's it. Right. Yeah. That's right. That's it. We're all gonna make it, baby. Yeah. Well, Brad, as ever, core episode. Very well done. Very well thank researched. You. I know so much more about John Kennedy Tool. Dan, thank you for your insights during the episode and for doing a bit of reading. I can't wait to get my copy of Nutcranker. You're going to want to read that to understand why the, why the title makes sense. He explained yeah. it, but you really want to get there because there's, there's a setup where he might actually get his nuts cranked. So it's not entirely <laughs> clear. Um, and... Uh, <laughs> And one final time. Well, we've got to we've got to close out with the, yes. the closing question, question. Then plug Patreon. Then then we'll do the after dark. Yeah. Yeah. So Kevin, well, I guess who who's getting asked the question? Let, let, let's uh, let's ask our our guest first. Okay. Uh, the, the question. The, the so we we sandwich the, every episode when we don't forget with an opening <laughs> and a closing question. So here's the closing question: What would John Kennedy Tool be doing now if he were still alive? I um. I think he'd be writing Nutcranker. Yeah. So. <laughs> but uh, no, yeah. He, he would be, he, I mean, I think he'd find real grist for the mill in the current political moment. He anticipated it so well mm -hmm. that, uh, yeah, he would be writing the, the great comic novel, the great right wing, or not even <laughs> necessarily right, but on the right, there is yeah. a sort of sense of like, we need a, an updated version of Bonfire of the Vanities. We need... And yeah, his skills and his outsider kind of um, mentality is just very well suited for the current moment. So mm. he would be writing that novel. And in fact, I think he kind of did. I think Dunces yeah. is really the novel for our time. Yeah. Yeah. Well said. Well said. I'll follow on that and say, yes, I agree. I also think he'd be edgelording. I think yes. he probably under his own name. 
I uh, think he might have yeah. an alt that is like Spencer Grunhauer level crazy. <laughs> this is like for fun. That is, yeah. you know, an alt, mm. and then have you know his his own you know John Kennedy tool where yeah, he's like his, wearing, a, wearing a suit. I don't I don't <clears> think <throat> he gets a blue, I don't think he gets a blue check. No. I think he he eschews the the mark of the yeah. beast and uh, <laughs> uh, yeah. yeah he could yeah. do some epic trolling epic oh, yeah. trolling yeah. yeah it does not yeah. surprise me that he was would they describe him as a wit yeah they did oh yeah it does not yeah. surprise me at all he must have yeah. been fun at on the he would have been, he'd be fun in the podcast uh party oh, sure. circuit as well sure yeah storyteller yeah. and yeah 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 mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. absolutely and potentially homosexual which we're going to talk about uh, 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 when we come back for the After Dark episode for Patreon subscribers only. Patreon.com slash Art of Dark Pod. What's the final takeaway? I think we just reiterate, right? Like, don't give up. Don't give up, man. Yeah. WGMI. WGMI. Keep at it, man. Yep. Yep. And, what are you uh, going to do? Not keep going? Like, what What are you going to do? Right. Yeah. yeah. You got to do it. Just, just keep swimming, baby. Yeah. I, you know, I have, a, I have the show title, I think. Should we call it John Kennedy Tools Edgelord Confederacy or should we call it uh, John Kennedy Tool Edgelord of Dunces? <laughs> mm, I like, I like, edgelord I like them both. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Edgelord, edgelord Confederacy. In there. I'm going to go. Okay. I'm going to go with that. Yeah, with a colon in there. On, yeah, no, I'm just going to go John Kennedy Tools, ed, oh, tools. Edgelord. Okay. Yeah, Tools mm. Edgelord Confederacy. Brad. Mm. Thank you, my man. We got some good stuff coming up. I'm getting Crowley prepped, Mister Crowley. Oh, it's gonna be a banger. I'm getting my, yeah, I'm getting my. That, all that's my like one. That's coming. one that could be like six hours long. Oh, bro, we don't even know. I mean, nobody has any has any clue. Uh, yeah. th- there's still stuff coming out. Was he a double agent? Was he what? What the hell was oh, that I guy? Hope so. That sounds yeah. Fun. Oh, but I got the book specifically for that. So stay tuned. Uh, smash, smash that like button. Give us five <laughs> stars. Get on the Patreon. We love you. Mwah, 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 mwah. Thanks again. And for look out Thank for Nutcranker coming coming yeah. soon. No, this, this was awesome. Yeah, yeah. Nutcracker Terror House Press coming 2022. Uh, get it. And uh, again, we're whispering about a book club for the Patreon, and we may, we may include Nutcranker in the book club. So stay tuned. All right. I hope so. Yeah, be fun. All right. All right, man. All right. Thank you, guys. Yep. This, uh, this was great. Thanks, Dan. Bye. Bye.